Yes, welcome to our exploration of the Kardashian principle. Number one was a caller who said, what is the root cause or origin of social awkwardness? And we really hit the wide ranges of possibilities in this question, uh, environment and genetics and so on, but um, well worth a listen to see how some of this stuff can originate. Number two, are there rational arguments against the social justice warrior narrative? What are the intentional or unintentional consequences to the adoption of this narrative by society as a whole? Well, of course, you may have heard that I have some thoughts about social justice warriors, and I certainly did not hold back from expressing them in this conversation to the slight consternation, or perhaps more than slight consternation, of the caller. I think you'll enjoy that. Number three, what is the current and future relationship between the younger generation and the older generation? Given the world they have created with this massive government and debt and so on, Ah, the conflict between the old and the young, as old as the old and the young. And I think we broke this down in a very interesting way. So without any further ado, let's move straight into the conversation funded by you. Please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Here is your show. All right. Well, up first is Guy. Guy writes in and says, what is the root cause or origin of social awkwardness? That's from Guy. Right. And so we were just talking uh, about uh, what that what does that mean? Social awkwardness. That's a big bucket to put in. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very big sea to swim in. Um, I think if you take social awkwardness for what it is, it's I think um, an inability to see someone else's um, uh, pains, someone else's troubles. I think, uh, and reflect them that are reflected on yourself. And, and that gives you a bad, bad habit of, uh, discarding, uh, opt- opportunities and stuff like this and thinking you're worth less or, or something like that. I'm sorry, what is it that gives you the feeling that you're worth less? Um, the feeling that I can't connect uh, entirely with my environment. And when I do, it comes with a price, like a disconnect from reality at times. And uh, it's very, very constraining to, to try and go on without, without thinking of society's, uh, Orders, society's um, um, rules, or something like this. If you come to a, like a, a social event, or you're in a social venue, and you need to straighten up, and you need to go with the herd, and stuff like this, it's very hard. Especially because I'm not in a, a like a normal college of vicinity, or something like that. It's a sort of a semi-religious university that uh, dictates everyone's interests and uh, academic uh, um, appreciations and stuff like this. And uh, so, sorry to interrupt, but how how do you feel at the moment talking? Because you sound you sound very down, very uh, emotionless, very. No, I'm just kind of uh, here, kind of no, here, but not here. If that makes sense. No, I'm just a bit uh, nervous. That's all. Not not because talking to you, but 
like in journal, general, when I talk to someone face-to-face, uh, -face, personal, I can get their social cues about, and I get the validity of my social awkwardness and stuff like this. And when I don't have that, and I don't have much to to grip, to grip on, and then I get a little bit uh, awkward. It's it's very um, difficult for me, especially in this uh, like a public setting, to to think straight. Okay, so you're giving me you're giving me a lot of abstractions, and I guess I'm asking you how you're feeling. No, just a bit nervous. That's all. A bit nervous, like one to ten. How nervous do you feel? Uh maybe a seven. So that's more than a bit, right? Yeah, it's more than a bit. Because social awkwardness, to my way of thinking, and I'm obviously no expert, but this is just my my opinion, social awkwardness has to do with um, not being in a place or in a relationship where you could be honest, right? So what you could have said at the beginning is, I feel really nervous. Um, you know, like 7 out of 10, that's pretty high, right? But you gave me a lot of abstractions without any emotional content which is hard to connect with. Do, do you know what I mean? I feel like it's hard for me to connect with. Yes, I understand because sometimes I, I feel I have to to bridge the gap between uh, feeling guilt, you know, because I don't feel I'm uh, very, um, very inspired or I try to aspire to get to higher places. Okay, I, I, can't, I can't go down this road of abstractions with you again, guy. Like, I apologize for that. It's just not going to help, right? So when you were going to call in, or when you were calling in, or when we started our conversations, you felt uh, very nervous, right? Seven out of ten. Yeah. It's fair to say that that's very nervous, right? And I... So the question is why... And it's not a criticism. It's just a genuine, curious question. Why you give me all these abstractions rather than tell me how you're feeling? Because if you say, well, I'm socially awkward, I'm tough to, I have a tough time connecting with people, but then you hide your feelings behind these abstractions, that's going to have something to do with it, I would assume. And again, this is not a criticism at all in any way, shape, or form. I'm just No, it's, just curious, it, right? it's simply because talking to a, str a stranger, that's, that's the thing. You know, not but I'm not a stranger. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I mean... If I was some guy on a bus who farted and you wanted to complain about it, okay, I'm a stranger, but I assume you've had some exposure to this show. No, before, I'm, right? I'm not the starstruck or something like that. I didn't say I didn't say that either. I'm just correcting you when you say that I'm a stranger. <laughs> yeah. Strange maybe, but not a stranger. <laughs> yeah. So what's because if you if you want to connect with people, connection occurs at an emotional level. It does not occur at an intellectual level. In fact, the intellectual level can be a very powerful way of rejecting or avoiding emotional connection. Avoiding. So my question yeah. is, my question is, like when you're growing up, when you were growing up, what was the status of emotions in your family or your environment? Um, my family would very I don't know how to put it my close family or my my larger circle of, of relatives or something like that or just my uh, 
my oh my god can you just talk about your family will you stop giving me okay. concentric circles of family relations <laughs> i can't do it i can't do it cut through the fog okay when you were growing up don't, i don't need well my third cousin okay just <laughs> tell me what was it like for you to have emotions around your family when you were growing up um i didn't generally have uh, emotions i uh sort of build myself up for disappointments um wait okay hang on so you didn't i said what was it like having emotions when you were growing up and you said i generally didn't have emotions yeah my my own emotions were very acute with some sort of event that triggered them i had very euphoric wait, are you saying that that even sorry are you saying that even when you were very young you because you know i mean Yes, I I've been a full-time dad to a baby. Babies are full of emotion. <laughs> they are no, full no. of was... emotion because that's how they have to communicate their needs and wants prior to language acquisition. Yes, I was. Ever... So, did you not, even as a toddler, did you not have feelings that you know? No, I can't remember some sort of feeling. Um, because okay, I w- so what this gender, so uh, what I would assume this means, I've never met a non-passionate baby. Right. I mean, there are babies who are really listless if they've had, you know, they've been stuck in those Romanian orphanages for months, staring at grainy videos of the Lion King over and over again. So those kids get kind of catatonic or apathetic. But what I would imagine is that if you grew up in an environment where your emotions were upsetting to other people or they didn't like them or they considered them bad in some way, then you would have probably learned to suppress your emotions, as we generally do learn to suppress that whichever our caregivers disapprove of. Right? I was very, very uh, emotionally distant. Um, I was very secluded, and intrinsically I was in a turmoil. And I was very... Okay, so let's just, because the way that you have... Our, our personalities so often are defined by the narratives we have about our personalities, right? So if you say, I was very emotionally distant, then you are saying that you had some sort of essence that didn't have anything to do with your environment. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I could say, well, I was blonde as a, as a, as a kid, right? And I had this like crazy, <laughs> well, yellow, white, blonde hair, right? So I could say, well, I was blonde, or I was blue-eyed, or, you know, I had some freckles, or whatever it is, like when I was a little boy. And this would not be specific to my environment. That would be, you know, I was male, right? It's not like, that was not socially conditioned, right? It wasn't like uh, I developed a penis as a result of having a conversation about my endless thirst for male Evolution, right? evolution. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so those would be things that would be to do with myself, independent of my environment. Now, if I said I was hungry, well, that would have something to do with my environment. If I said um, I was scared or whatever it was, then that would have something to do with my environment. So if you say I was emotionally distant, then you're saying it's like you, like you might have brown hair or, or brown eyes or something like that. But if you say that my emotions were rejected, or, or, you know, again, I don't know what, what the exact phrasing would be. But it's really, really important to know that, the, see, well, okay, what's self-knowledge? Well, self-knowledge, okay, self-knowledge is fundamentally knowing what is innate to you and what is environmental. And, of course, this is, this is a lot of blurring, right? Would I have, like, I'm an intelligent guy, 
And I've, <laughs> I've spoken to enough experts now to know that that has a large degree to do with genetics. You know, 60 to 80% or whatever it is that people uh, work with, right? So, you know, I am just under six feet tall. I am 195 pounds. You know, these are things that, you know, I guess there's some choice involved, right? Um, so I am creative, uh, and that would have been the case regardless of my, my upbringing. And so there are some things that are more innate to my character, and there are some things that are the result of my environment and other people and its effects upon me. And so when, so when I think back to when I was a little kid and the things that I thought and the things that I said, I mean, the evidence of significant intelligence was there from the very beginning, particularly verbal skill. You know, I was telling my daughter the other day about the first short story I wrote in, um, in South Africa when I was six. And, you know, I've been writing sort of poems and, and stories, and I wrote my first, started writing my first novel when I was 11. And I was, language has been sort of <laughs> my thing. You know, the moment I joined a debate team, I came in sixth in Canada in the first couple of months, right? I mean, it's just, it's been a, a strong skill of mine from the very beginning. So naturally, I went into tech. <laughs> but, um, so when it comes to, if you say, well, I was X, then you're saying that I was X independent of my environment. However, if you're talking about social awkwardness, then to say that that's any kind of social awkwardness is independent of your environment is to saying that which is problematic for me socially has nothing to do with social life, right? And that wouldn't make any sense. A social awkwardness must have something to do with your reception Pre the presence of people. as a child. Yeah, it's just, it's people must have done something because it's a, you know, it's like if I have a, if I, if, if I, if I trip and fall into a wall and get a black eye, well, that's me stumbling, right? But if somebody punches me, I don't take the, I can't put charges against the wall, right? But if somebody punches me in the eye, okay, that's different, right? It's, it's a fundamentally different situation. And so knowing the presence of other people and its effect upon you is, it's really the first fork in the road when it comes to self-knowledge, to knowing about yourself. You must know what is innate within you, and you must know that which is socially affected. And again, I'm not saying it's black and white, sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other, but it is important to know because that way you can work on the things that you can change, right? So that which is dependent upon your environment while you have control over your environment, and that which is dependent upon your genetics, you have very little control over any of that, right? So uh, focusing on the efforts that you can make to change or improve yourself first relies, requires that you know the difference between that which is an innate, is innate within, within you and that which responded to, uh, was a response to your environment. Does this, does this make sense? Yes, it makes a, a whole lot of sense. It's very... And the last thing I'll say, and I'm sorry to ask a question, then answer it. The, the reason I'm talking about this is that if your social awkwardness is genetic... Well, I'm good with language, but I'm not like the gene whisperer, right? Like I can't, I can't, I can't whisper to your genes and say you must change. First, you must grow gills because swimming is great is a great deal of fun, and who wants to bother with a snorkel? And then a blowholes, you know, and and then uh, it would be great if you had bat wings because don't we all want to fly? Like I can't, I can't talk you into a different genetic structure. So knowing, so if you say, well, I was just, uh, you know. I just was an emotionally distant kid. Okay, well, 
if it had if it had nothing to do with your environment, then it's probably genetic, in which case philosophy doesn't have really anything to do with it. But if it has something to do with your environment, then self-knowledge and, and philosophy can be of value. Yeah, I, I grew up and uh, how will I phrase it better? Um, I was, uh, I think I was a know-it-all. I think I was very, very intelligent and I think I still am. Um, um, I had very bad testing scores. I would... Uh, would be very um, emotionally distant with my teachers and I wouldn't open up to anything they would say and any criticism would fall short of violence or ignorance. Um, I would get into a lot of fights because my verbal communication was downfall. It was downfall from since I was six when it, the teacher took my math my math book and she took it away because she said this is not how you do your homework this is not how you do stuff you're not a good student i had to transfer schools for whatever reasons i can remember exactly we moved the neighborhoods that's the arbitrary reason that's the surface level. Um, I met a friend at this school. I went through to the when the second semester started at my new school. Um, I just looked at the, an open chair and I sat down. Um, the teacher introdu introduced me, which was very uh, emotionally. Uh, vulnerable place for me to be. Um, I would use to get into fights with the teacher and uh, one time I threw a plastic chair at the principal. She <laughs> she yelled at me and uh, she scoffed at me and all the kids saw that she was dragging me by the ear outside of, outside of class and mid-class and uh, was very shameful. I used to get. So what are we? Uh, what are we? Uh, what are we not talking about? Because you're talking about all times. Okay, so here's what you're saying to me is, Steph. Here's the times after I was socially awkward, right? No, that's the the times I started to feel socially awkward. From, awkward from this time. From the time I could remember being socially awkward. So you don't have a memory of a time before your social awkwardness. Because you're saying, well, the teacher introduced you, I felt very shy, so there's already some social awkwardness here, right? Okay, so what are you not talking about? Why, why are you leading on a wild goose chase saying, well, the effect of my social awkwardness on my school were ABC. Right? <laughs> so why, what are we not, not talking about here, guys? Yeah, I'm not going to give you all my resume in one, <laughs> in one sit. No, no, you're, you're, you're leading me astray, right? You're leading me to, to, um, to a place which is not where the problem is. Yeah. Um, if we fast forward today... No, no, no. We're not going forward. <laughs> because if, if you're already social, socially awkward in this part of the conversation, there's no point going forward, right? Right. The question is, 
what was the, the genesis of the social awkwardness. And I asked you about your early childhood, your toddlerhood, and what have you not said anything about? Someone, something, a life-altering event or trauma. No, no your parents. My parents. Okay. My father. Or your primary <laughs> caregiver, if it wasn't your parents or whatever it is, right? No. So uh, I'm saying to you, are... and I gave you all the cues, baby, toddlerhood, right? And you're <laughs> telling me all about your school experience and so on, right? And it's like, dude. No, I can't remember. I have to tell you that I don't have something significant to, to hold on in my toddler years or my ch- my babyhood. <laughs> Per se. What do you mean? You have no? Do you have no memory of anything that happened, or do you have no memory Before, of? Uh, go ahead. Something specific. Maybe there was one increment in which uh, my my mother took took me to, to her home away from my father. I don't know what what's the reason. Maybe they argued. Maybe something happened. Remember that I tried to call my father, and uh, I don't know, maybe she grabbed the phone from my hands and told me some sort of separation occurred. Um, that's when the, the memories stopped coming. Yeah. That's like... Okay, and Maybe and now when you when you interact, half. sorry, sorry, interrupt. When you interact with your parents at the moment, guy, what's it like? I mean, can you talk about your your thoughts and feelings, or is it all just well? What is it? It's very agitating. It's very, it's very aggravated talk. With it's like a shouting competition that occurs every time we try to talk about. One of my uh, problems, maybe uh, eating too much, and if I eat something and I don't, and I don't, if I grab something, and then my uh, my dad starts to yell and scream. No, he, he doesn't yell and scream, but he tries to make me yell and yell and scream. He tries to break me to. To break me f- to for to his will <clears throat> to that I will do whatever he wants me to do exactly like if I buy something that is not on the list or something that he told me to take and I didn't then he starts to yell starts to talk about the prices of the the products he wants me to give give him the the receipt he doesn't want to talk normal normally he just yells and argues and then i yell and argue and then he starts to to laugh and, and he start, starts to guilt trip me into submission telling them that i'm killing him that I will give You're killing him. That's what he's saying. I'm not putting words in his mouth. That's well, that's kind of hysterical, right? So it, it sounds like kind of manipulative and bullying interactions can happen with your dad, right? Right. 
Do you think that might have had an effect on your comfort with people socially? I think that that I'm his I'm how will I put this better? I'm dependent on him so much that whenever I talk to people, even in a subconscious level, I just think of how he would approve of every single... I'm sorry, when you say you're dependent on him, do you mean that you were dependent upon him emotionally or financially or... Both. Both, Both. at the moment. And why are you dependent upon him financially? Because I had this period after I got released from the army and we went on a couple of trips to Europe and he's still uh, guilt-tripping me on stuff like this and whenever I want to what, find... Stuff like what? Like what? That you went on a trip? Yeah, yeah, that I throw money away and I throw money away at school studying where I should be working. And whenever I say that I can balance work and university and stuff like this, and he says, well, this job is not good and that is not good and what are you going to do with your life? You're you're not going to achieve anything. You're not going to get to any place that's going to want you. Everyone is going to take your money after I'm gone and stuff like this. Very... So he very, thinks that you're very not a very strong uh, guilt. Yeah, he thinks that you're not a very confident person. Yeah, that I don't have any character. Now, does he at all wonder, uh, since he was the parent and had the significant influence, you as the same sex parent as your father, does he ever say, uh, "Gosh, I wonder if I could have been a better father to give you more confidence and better judgment uh, as an adult?" Instead of you know saying that you're yeah, telling me but, when you disagree with me and screaming and whatever, right? But sarcastically, you know, he says like. Oh, I guess it's all my fault. I guess I should have just yeah. fixed everything for a kid. And, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Stuff like this. You're going to blame me for the stuff you're happening. And if you met if you met this man, right, it's a tough question theoretically. If, but if, if, you, I would, if you met this... Sorry, if I would smack you when you were a kid, you were, you were grow uh, up straight and stuff like this. Not straight, like sexually straight, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're going to go... Now, if, if, this you, was, uh, if this was not your father... If this was just some guy that you met at a party or at a restaurant or whatever it is, uh, what do you think your relationship with him would be like? There will be no relationship with this kind of person. Um, I generally eat up, eat, uh, how do I say? Hmm. I generally uh, ignore uh, increments like this or... Or a status where I can't leave, or if I can leave, so then I I say to myself, what could I have achieved? What could I have gained from this situation? And then I feel felt guilty that I wasn't exceeding um, to my full potential in every wake of life. Yeah, in every in every event that I might might encounter, and I say, "How the hell am I going to, to do this?" Like, 
how can I go through another session of stupidity and human disguise and lies? All right, sorry, we're going back into abstract land again. Okay. So Sorry. you have a problem in that you have someone in your life who is corrosive towards your self-confidence and feeling of competence and efficacy in your life, right? I mean, if you, if you have someone around, well, this is probably an extreme, but, but uh, if, if you have someone around who is constantly saying, you're an idiot, you're incompetent, you're foolish, you're bad at things, you're going to get taken advantage of, you're an idiot, whatever, right? What's your choice? I mean, if you have someone like that in your life, then um, should get up and leave. this is going to have an effect on you, especially if it's your father, right? Yeah, uh, it's also it also intertwines with the fact that both my parents weren't weren't active parents. There were the modern day parents, the the uh, nine seven nine five uh, jobs, but my mother wasn't nine to five job. Um, I would always go home alone. Um, not that it's a problem because I'm, I wasn't just I wasn't a crybaby because I learned that that parents don't don't stay so whenever he says that I don't respect him enough uh, I know exactly what he means because I know he he's not gonna stay because he wasn't he wasn't there when I grew up and when he was there we would he was only in the mornings like in the mornings he would okay make, I get it make, so they were they were not they were not yeah. very involved parents right yeah. Now, just I don't want to get into the details, but for those of you who are out here listening to this who were surprised the guys mentioned it, military service, this was not military service by choice. So I just wanted to sort of mention that, to say the least. In fact, it's military service that's almost impossible to get out of. And anyway, so, all right. So, um, so the question is, as far as social awkwardness goes, if you're regularly attacked... It's going to make you feel jumpy, right? Right? If you're regularly attacked, it's going to make you feel jumpy. Now, if you were, and this is the great tragedy of, of how this stuff replicates, guy. If you are attacked, and rejection is a kind of attack for parents. If you reject your child, that's actually even worse than attacking. And the, the way that you reject your child is you respond in a negative way to his or her spontaneous emotions. Children's emotions can be inconvenient to parents, to say the least. All emotions can be inconvenient to parents. And so if, as a child, you have these spontaneous emotions, and all emotions are, are embodied values. Right? So all emotions are, are um, they are instant, instant judgments, sorry, they're, they're, they're instant visceral judgments of in, inherited or embedded values. Let me, let me just finish this part up and then I'll... Right, so our values are our identity. It's, I mean, because we can choose our values. I mean, they're inflicted on us when we're kids, but we can choose our values. And the values are the most core of who we are because they are the essence of who we are. 
And they are what we can choose. I can't choose my gender or my race or my height or my hair color or anything, eye color, but I can choose my values. And so when you reject someone's emotions, you are rejecting their values. In other words, you're rejecting that which they have chosen or let happen to them, which is also a choice. It's the most fundamental rejection of someone is to reject their emotions. And so if you grew up being rejected for your emotions, which is another way of saying being attacked for any spontaneous emotions you did have, then what happens is all children will strangle that which in themselves, which is rejected by their parents. All children would do that. And, you know, you sound like a secular kind of fellow. I'm sure you can understand the evolutionary demand. Because um, uh, during our evolution, children were incredibly disposable. Right? I mean, women would have, you know, 10 or 20 kids over the course of their childbearing years. A lot of those kids wouldn't make it to adulthood. You know, I was just reading the other day in preparation for... A lot of the for, women wouldn't make it Maturing. Yeah, a lot of the women would die, and uh, and of course, if the um, uh, if the woman died, that created a huge stressor for the child because if the father remarried, then the new mother, right, the evil stepmother, you know, that's always in the fairy tales. Well, that makes perfect sense biologically, right? The evil stepmother is the <laughs> is the mother who has no biological investment, no genetic investment in the children of the woman she replaced. So, of course, she's, she's going to have her own children, and she's going to feed the children of her predecessor less and care about them less, right? And so children lived an incredibly precarious existence. You know, food was always short. There was always some kind of disease. There were people dying all over the place. And so there's a reason why in the sort of primitive cultures child sacrifice is okay because children, and we still see this, the vestiges of this incredible disposability of children we still see in us, frankly, not giving much of a shit about children's quality of experience in government schools or the fact that you get drafted into the military for a couple of years against your will and so on. It's just children are there for the convenience of parents. And uh, when I was a kid, the, the phrase that I heard repeatedly was, children should be seen and not heard. Or if I blocked my mother's view of something, she would say, well, you're a pain, but you're not a window pane. Right? So children were always continually made to feel insecure. That's the only way that irrational cultures can reproduce themselves, is by making children feel insecure, which means that they have to jettison everything about them that is inconvenient to their parents' preferences. So, so the precariousness of our existence as uh, children through evolution meant that if your parents don't like something about you, well, you will suppress it. And if your parents don't like your emotions, which is not to say that they don't like your emotions, what it means is that they don't like their own emotions, but they don't feel crippled if you're emotionally dead inside, right? Um, I, I, I don't, like if, if someone calls me up and starts speaking Mandarin, I don't feel very eloquent. <laughs> because, right, I don't speak so. So if, if you've, had a history uh, with your own family of, of when you grew up that your emotions are bad and, and you've got to be all kinds of intellectual and, and all that, then, okay, well, then your kids come along, these spontaneous balls of incandescent feeling, and they're speaking Mandarin, which you don't speak, and instead of, and you've probably spent a lot of your life focusing on intellectual competence, then someone comes yeah. along 
demands emotional competence and you feel suddenly ridiculous and bad and your fragile ego can't hand it, handle it. So <laughs> rather than try and improve your own emotional intelligence, you end up squashing the emotions of your kids and your emotions of your kids will be squashed because any child that did not conform to the bigotries or preferences of their parents throughout our evolution, well, let's just say those genes did not exactly flourish, uh, to put it mildly, right? So, so, and, and you can see this, of course, you know, all, all over the world, right? I mean, in, in extreme cases, right, in North Korea, uh, I saw a documentary where the, um, you know, the kids were talking to some reporter from the West, and the parents and the teachers were all over those kids, making sure they said exactly the right thing. Because if they didn't, well, the whole gene pool could be wiped out, right? Uh, and, and you see this, of course, with things like circumcision, right? Which, uh, you know, well, why would the child have body integrity? That's The child belongs to the culture. The yeah, child but is, is a vessel by which we pour culture from one generation to another so that those who like to be in charge of culture rather than reality can continue to get their goddamn paychecks. So I just wanted to point out that if you grew up in an environment where your emotions were considered a negative thing and, you know, vulnerability is one of these fundamental things uh, about emotions, right? If I'm hurt, does anyone care? Or is my hurting inconvenient and annoying for other people? And if that's your experience, then socializing is painful for you. Like, if, if someone called me up and said, you know, I have a phobia of sticking a fork into an electrical socket, what would I say? <laughs> What would I say? I have this irrational fear of sticking my fork into an electrical socket. What would I say? It's not rational. It's not irrational. How much fun is it has how much fun is it for you to chat with your dad? It's a ball. <laughs> It's yeah. a ball of yeah. bad feelings, <laughs> right? It's, it's not fun, right? Yeah. And so if you say, well, I have the social awkwardness, I don't know. It seems to me that, that a, a better description of that is to say that when I socialize, let's say, with my father, I can't win. I either completely blindly conform, in which case he criticizes me for not having any personality or any choice, or I make some choices, in which case he criticizes them for being different from, from himself, and he escalates until I either fold or we fight. Uh, I mean, there's just no way that I can have a relaxed, fun, happy, and positive Nobody. interaction yeah. with my father. And we're not picking on your dad. This is, could be, I mean, we haven't even talked about mom and siblings and aunts and cousins, like we just because <laughs> this is the person who came up. Right? So... If you're in a situation where you can't win, you know, that old question, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Can't, can't win. <laughs> Funny game. The only way to win is not to play, right? And um, so if, you're, if your dad is this way inclined, and it's not rare, but maybe the norm in your interactions, or at least quite common, I don't think you're socially awkward. Because that's internalizing the issue to you as if there was no environmental triggers. And 
I think that accurate identification of the source of the problem is really, really important. Because if it's, if you, no, there, there are some studies that show that personality is significantly heritable, right? So this one twin study found that personality is between 39 and 58% heritable. Now, of course, shared womb environment and all that, who knows, right? But there are, you know, there's a 2012 study by Randy Buckner, who actually is not a country singer, despite the name. He's a guy at Harvard University. He discovered that introverts tended to have larger and thicker gray matter in their prefrontal cortex, the reason that the brain is linked to abstract thought and decision-making, while extroverts have less gray matter. It might be accountable for introverts' tendencies to sit in a corner and ponder things through thoroughly before making a decision, extroverts' ability to live in the moment and take risks without fully thinking everything through, which has its cons, pros and cons at all. So, but I mean, is that environment? Is that genetics? I don't know. I don't know. But I think that if we look, what I have found in having many conversations with people in this show over the years regarding social awkwardness is I hear, and I don't mean to depersonalize your experience, Guy, but what I hear over and over again is I have a really difficult relationship with my parents, and strangely enough, I'm socially awkward. Your parents are your model and your template for how to interact with people. And if it's can't win, always fail, traumatic, abusive, horrible, negative, difficult, well, I don't think it's so much social awkwardness. It's like, go on, put your fork back in the socket again. You got to love it. (laughs) I think I can. I must have some weird genetic thing (laughs) about not wanting to get these electrical shocks. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. No, because uh, I tend to to immerse myself in so many different levels of intellectuality that uh, I find myself so I'm swimming in a pool of knowledge and I feel like the idiocy is about to get me. Everywhere I, I go, I, I have to throw the towel to stupidity. And that's the reason why I can't um, truly... Um, acknowledge people's social behaviors people people's inner inner uh, worlds or uh, hobbies um i feel like they don't intertwine with my uh, perception of the world because i was um uh, so uh, viled even by uh, social inter- interactions I uh, took my took my other uh, celestial um, work um, to the uh, the fringes of uh, pop culture, and um, much of my music, my uh, psychological um, <laughs> appeal, uh, philosophical um, knowledge, and like I, I was so immersed into the philosophical knowledge. In the Greek Greek mythology and uh, modern enlightenment, uh, like uh, Nietzsche and Kant and Schopenhauer and Spinoza, or to name a few, my favorite, just neo neologicals, neo uh, conservatives, if I can say it. The enlightenment was shine 
was shining hard on my uh, <laughs> my pale eyes. I, I also uh, write s- short stories and I play. Now a you bit know of- what you're doing now, right, guy? <laughs> what? You're luring me back to abstract land. No. Right? No, it's it's a habit, right? This is what you do when you're not the first Jewish person to do this. <laughs> right? I mean, we're talking about your early childhood experiences, your experience with your dad, right? Who says you're killing him for <laughs> like this right? That's crazy stuff. And you're talking to me about Nietzsche and short stories and right, you're popping into abstract land, right? Because, look, you and I both know deep down in your heart, it's pretty painful to have this relationship, right? I mean, this is not what you want. This is not what is helpful to you. This is a very difficult... It's a cross to bear, if I can... It's a catastrophe. It's a, yeah, it is. It's a new rapture on my life that I, I can't seem to move on. It's, it's something so catastrophic cataclysm that I can't seem to to move away from from shame and and guilt um, I project this to others like regularly and I can't seem to to be, learn to behave normally socially I recoil back to to doing the creative stuff that I was doing, I and I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> see other people. I couldn't talk if I had to talk, is just to keep the facade going and stuff like this. Um, it was very painful, and, uh, so secluding. <laughs> it's. It's it, it's horrible because I remember that every time I gave the test scores to my dad, he was sleeping. Every time I was doing something good, he wasn't there. And if he was there, he would wait in, wait in the car or not even cheering from the crowd. I don't know. He just put all the blame of my failure on myself he couldn't see I was trying to do this for him I was trying to do this for my mother and she tried to force me to learn tried to force me to learn math to study private teachers that I I, I said like fuck it, we, we couldn't afford such stupid things. And even though education couldn't be replaced by many things, it, it can't replace my, my emotional existence, my personal world. It's stuff that, that are not in, inter, interchangeable. It's, uh, it's very disgusting. I can't, use any other words to describe it. Right. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, when it comes to social awkwardness, how easy are your primary relationships is a really key 
he questioned. And it's see, and and I got to move on to the next caller, but I did want to leave you with this thought, which is it's not just how difficult your primary relationships are that counts when it comes to because the question is right, and it's a fundamental question that's probably deep down in everyone's heart who has this this issue, which is okay. Well, let's say that my relationship with my dad is really difficult. Well, why does that spill over to general social awkwardness? with other people who aren't my dad. Well, I can tell you what I think, and it's more than just a thought, because I've now talked to enough people to know that I think this is kind of a verified pattern. But Guy, if you have a difficult relationship with your father, that's obviously very important to you, particularly, of course, when you're young. Hey, (laughs) when you get older, you can go days and days without thinking about difficult things in your childhood and so on, which is great, you know. (laughs) All leave it in the dust. It becomes as relevant as the street map of Pompeii. When you're young, and rightly so, right? Stuff you've got to sort out. So, so this is a lot on your mind, and it's a lot in your heart. And how does it show up for you socially? When you talk about, like, if, if you want to talk about difficulties that you have with your relationship with your dad, how do other people react? Yeah, whenever I think about someone, I always try to put my dad in first. It's like the trifecta of, of religious belief, the Christian belief that you have to have the Father, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that's the connection that that brings me, draws me back to thinking about Him all dude, the time. Dude, if, if you start answering an emotional question with theology... You know I'm going to interrupt you. Right? I'm sorry. That's that's a t- terminology that that I can sustain. That my brain can sustain. I'm not. What saying that happens I'm... when you try to talk to your friends about your difficult relationship with your father? Never, never. Right. I almost. Why, well, never. what happens? So you never do it, right? No. I have one good friend that I've been with 17 years since I got here to my current living. Um, I, and you uh, don't talk about it with him either. Um, somewhat, but not in a, a little tentatively here and there. Yeah, a little. Why do you event, think you don't talk about small it? Small events, or small tantrums, not not why something you, big. Hang on, why do you think you don't? And it's not again, it's not a criticism. I'm not saying you should, but why do you think you don't talk about this? this is a very important issue for you. It's core to the things that you're you're struggling with in your life and you can't talk about it with your friend of 17 years. Yeah, we... And trust we, me, that's not because you're socially awkward. I'll tell you that for sure. I'm not socially awkward and I spent decades not talking about my childhood with my friends. Yeah, I, I try to conform. Um, sometimes my aspirations and uh, beliefs go out the window when I... Nope, nope, when I'm distracting again. Sorry. <laughs> okay. What is your feeling, if you've just had a difficult interaction with your father and you want to go and talk about it with your friend, what is the feeling that prevents you from doing that? Um, I feel the, the social construct of our... Uh, no, you uh, cannot feel a social construct. What is your feeling? <laughs> hmm. I feel 
more unsafe. I feel like it's fear. a man's space. Fe- fear, fear is the word you're looking for. Am I, am I right? Listen, let me tell you something. Years ago, I was um, standing with a friend, and we were overlooking a balcony, uh, overlooking the woods. And this friend and I had both been into uh, objectivism when we were young. And this was, I don't know, 20, 25 years after we were young, young teenagers, whatever, right? And I really wanted to ask him what he thought of objectivism now. And I'm still a huge fan of objectivism. And I wanted to ask him, and I was too scared, too scared to ask him. Because what if he'd said, oh, it was fine when I was a teenager, but I outgrew that years ago. That would have been a great challenge for us. Not, Not because, look, if he'd said, Here's, you know, here's, here's the stuff, here's the great stuff I got from objectivism. I think, like I say, I talk about the great stuff that I got from objectivism. Metaphysics and epistemology is pretty hard to argue with. Concept formation is pretty good. Um, ethics, I diverge. And politics, I diverge. Although I diverge far less from objectivist politics than just about any other politics um, in the world. So I would, but, but, so if he just said, you know, boy, what a, what an incredible, Philosophy and, and how much Ayn Rand has stimulated people's thoughts about philosophy. But here's, you know, I've thought about it for years. Here's where I think she's bang on and here's why and here's where I think she's not 100% and here's why. I would have had no problem with that conversation. It wasn't like, are you still a blind slave to the smoky Russian goddess of reason, right? No. It would have, if he deviated, so to speak, good. I mean, I have. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. But if he had taken this, oh, you know, that was kid stuff and I've outgrown, like if he'd taken this superiority without any rational content or analysis, that would have been utterly heartbreaking for me. And our friendship wouldn't have been the same. Wouldn't have been the same. Because he would have then dismissed something that we both treasured without any rational analysis. And that's not allowed. (laughs) I mean, you can't. I mean, you can. I always say to people on the internet, it's not an argument. It's not an argument. Not an argument, right? Oh, all of these typists who think they're being manly and they're just using single mom tactics of snark and derision and eye rolling and, oh, I love this. I mean, just look at the way he does this. Oh, right? And all of this eye rolling, girly, snarky stuff, which is actually kind of, I got to stop saying girly because I have a girl and she's (laughs) fantastic. But, um, I just wanted to, this is just one moment that I clearly remember that I was scared to ask. Maybe he was scared too. I don't know. Maybe he was scared to ask me. I don't know. I'll never know now, right? (laughs) But um, that reality of how honest can we be? You know, when I was a, I had very difficult family life, very difficult family life. And this is, you know, when people talk about, oh, the welfare state, or we want to help the refugees, or we want to help the people in Somalia, or we, 
We want to make sure that, that nobody gets illnesses in Africa. We want to you get all of the AZT medication. Okay, fine. How about instead we start listening to people with different childhoods without shutting them up? You know, once people can actually listen to someone who's had a bad childhood, then I'll believe how much people care about making sure that everyone has health care. You know what I mean? Like this leap over the personal virtues into these stupid bullying abstractions is what I've been fighting against, lo, these many, many years. You know, they used to, there was a saying when I grew up, charity starts at home. Charity starts at home. Charity begins at home. Right? In other words, you don't abandon your kids because you want to go off and help kids in the third world. Right? Go help your own kids. And I wrote a whole novel about this called Revolutions which people can get at freedomainradio.com, which was a guy who wanted to create a revolution, and it turned out that the best way to create a revolution, well, <laughs> it was charity begins at home. And so the, re- the way that the, the difficult childhoods and difficult relationship, particularly with parents, the way that it spills out into society as a whole is that it isolates us from those around us because we get stuck in our own heads and our own heads are going round and round with our difficult childhoods and our problem and problems are things we need to resolve with our parents or whoever. And the purpose of abuse is to isolate. Everyone who doesn't listen to victims of abuse is colluding and serving the abusers. And that is just about everyone in the world, you know, like people can come here and talk about it. I don't shut anyone up. In fact, I'll guide people towards it if I think it's important. But my guess is, Guy, that you live in an environment, as pretty much everyone does, where you can spend your entire life never talking about what's on your mind, and everybody is totally happy with that. And if you deviate from that, well, and this is this is what's so frustrating when you know, this women are wonderful effect comes up, and, oh, women, they're so, emotional intelligence is so high, and, and they're so great with their emotions, and so on. It's like, well, then why do we have a culture where anybody who brings up difficulties from their childhood, everybody goes, whoa, hey, or they just, they basically freeze up and shut up and reject you and explicitly or implicitly, or they just radiate discomfort until you shut the hell up and all that. It's like, oh, it's men's fault. I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, women do a lot of brutalizing of children, as we've talked about in the various studies and expertise experts that we've had on the show and women don't want to have people talk about difficult childhoods because those difficult childhoods include women and that might move this is a shout out to the next call or next call after this if women like if people talk about their difficult childhoods those difficult childhoods will involve women and uh that way uh, women might lose some of their privilege (laughs) right anyway so that's my thought uh, about it Uh, it's not social awkwardness it's difficult relations with your parents and the resulting the result being that you can't talk about your difficult relations with your parents because your friends will freak out and reject you so it's not social awkwardness you just have the secret we all have those of us who had difficult childhoods we have the secret of a difficult childhood and nobody wants to hear about it and all they want to do is talk uh, about how compassionate they all are sorry yeah but but my friend um often tries to coax it out of me he he tries to be He's very logical, very straightforward, very honest, very, very honest. 
that that's but the reason why, why are you calling me rather than talking to him no i'm not because, criticizing i'm just curious if you say well i've got this great listener who's known me for because 17 I, years. I like you know i like many faces to my to my experience i don't like being castrated or constrained in one ideological thought in one uh, way of thinking and perceiving the world uh, i like diversity uh I don't. I'm not like a leftist, crazy, politically correct, okay, fragile. Sorry, I just I can't follow you. I can't follow you into abstract land again. So yeah, if you can talk <laughs> about it with your friend, I really would really suggest that because um, to have people see the difficulties that we have in our life, you know, a burden shared, uh, a, a secret shared is a burden lifted. And so the more you can talk about it with people in your life, the better off you'll be. So in my humble opinion. So all right. Well, thanks, man. Uh, great call. I really appreciate. You are opening yourself up this way. I, again, I know I was constantly uh, abstract blocking you, but uh, I do find that it uh, is the most helpful approach to these kinds of chats. So thanks, Guy, and uh, keep us posted about how things go. All right, thanks, man. All right, well, up next is Josh. Josh wrote in and said, Are there any rational arguments against the social justice narrative, which claims the systematic oppression towards some groups by others, warrants that everyone recognize their own privilege and adjust their actions accordingly. Further, do you think that there are intentional or unintentional consequences to the adoption of this narrative by society as a whole? Well, that's from Josh. Well, what are your thoughts, Josh? Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah. Oh, man, sorry. I'm a little nervous here. Um, yeah, uh, I don't foresee any issues here uh sorry i'm i'm blanking out here uh i am a little skeptical of it but i find it difficult difficult to argue that uh there aren't certain benefits appropriated to certain people um in society and just on the basis of uh their their like past their experiences their their individual experiences like growing up all right so uh, so which groups are we talking about here um i mean you know typical groups right like myself white male heterosexual such and such okay so you're saying that as a white male you have advantages in your society right yeah yeah that's the idea and why? What advantages do you have? I mean, you know, Asians make more money in white countries, right? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I did not know that, but um, I'm certain. You do? <laughs> now I do. <laughs> um, so, so if Asians make more money, it can't be whiteness that has privilege. So something else must have privilege other than whiteness, because Asians do really well in white countries, right? They make like 20% more money than white people in white countries. <laughs> and so it can't be whiteness. It's got to be something else. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, what do you think it might be? Hmm. Oh, man, I'm, I'm totally blanking. Sorry, it's been a little while since I've thought of this. Um, That's fine. Yeah. There... Okay, so who, who makes the least money? In uh, America, I'm I'm not certain. <laughs> Blacks, got Blacks it. Make okay. The least money. Okay. Asians make the most money. Well, no. <laughs> let's let's go down the list, right? Five lists, right? 
Ashkenazi Jews make the most money, followed by Asians, followed by whites, followed by Hispanics, followed by blacks. Okay. Why does that? Why is that, do you think? It can't be white racism, because why on earth would white racists pay more money to Asians and Jews, right? Yeah, no, that, that stands to reason. So what do you think it might be? I mean, I think it could be argued that it would be problems within those social groups that make it difficult for them to um, kind of, you know, um, integrate themselves within the societies that produce a lot of wealth. I mean, yeah, that's that's my notion of it. But medium household income for Asians. In 2012, 68,636. 57,000 for whites. So basically, you know, they're stealing almost $11,000 from white people. Bastards. $39,000 for Hispanics and 33000 in change for blacks. Um, so you think it might be social problems? Um, yeah, no, I was, I was more, yeah. I mean, okay, so then in, in black cultures, like where the, where the blacks are in charge and, and all that, then they, should have, they shouldn't have these issues, right? Because they're not facing systemic white racism, right? 46% of Jews owed $100,000 or more. No other group even reached the 30% mark. 18% of Americans earn six figures annually, 100000 or more. 46% of Jews, right? So in... Like, Haiti is a country that it's been 400 years since there was colonialism. And, you know, how's that country doing? I mean, they're, they're not in, whites aren't in charge, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being pretty quiet here. Um, no, it's fine. Listen, I'm asking you difficult questions. And there's, there's very important reasons as to why I'm asking these questions. And there's very important reasons as to why you don't have the answers, which when I provide them to you, will be blindingly clear. <laughs> and, and the reason you don't have these answers is not because you're privileged. Let me tell you that, Josh. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what to say because the narrative. Well, let's, let's take, let's take another example. So when Jews came, fled Nazism, um, and obviously anti-Semitic persecution in Europe, they, and they came to America. I mean, they basically came with, a lot of them came with nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, how long do you think it took Jews to reach income parity with whites when they came to America? Um, I don't imagine it took them very long because I, I've listened well, it's to been 150 years for blacks since the end of slavery. It's been 50 years, 60 years since the end of Jim Crow and so on, right? Um, so how long did it, and, and blacks aren't to, you know, half, uh, a little more than half income parity to whites. How long do you think it took Jews to reach income parity with whites when they came from Europe? Hmm, probably less time than that, I would imagine. It was less than 50 years. It was less than 150 years. It was, in fact, four years. Hmm. Did now, they? Did they come? Was, was, was there any anti-Semitism? Was there any anti-Semitism in America in the 1940s and 1950s? Oh, yeah, 
certainly. But did did they come off their own volition, or were they? They fled Nazism. Okay. So no, <laughs> pretty much no. Right. I mean, if you're if you're trying to get out ahead of the concentration camp crew who's coming with a giant Nazi burlap sack, it may not be considered entirely voluntary. Right? <laughs> yeah. And and did they speak the language? Often not, because a lot of them came from Eastern Europe. A lot of them came from, of course, uh, Western Europe. Uh, where the Germans came, and did they speak English? No, not the majority, I would assume. Hmm. Right. So four years. Yearly income per capita in Haiti, right? Black-run state for 400 years. You have any? This is all. Sorry, you don't know these. I'm just curious if you can guess. What do you think the yearly income per capita is in Haiti? <laughs> no, no problem. Um, presumably, I, I don't know. Maybe twenty thousand. I, I have no idea. Yeah, because well, so blacks in America average income of thirty-three thousand a year. Blacks in Haiti, it's a little bit less. Four hundred dollars. $400 a year. Not white racism. In fact, the only white racism <laughs> that you could argue for with Haiti is the massive amounts of foreign aid that Haiti has received from white countries. Right? Right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm familiar with your arguments that foreign aid is largely used by the... Uh the ruling population there, not the actual... Population. Yeah, but... But, but it, I don't know if Haiti has a ruling white population. <laughs> yeah, no. Anymore. But, you know, we're not sending a lot of foreign aid to Japan, right? Right? It's not It's not the foreign aid that causes... It doesn't help. It's not the foreign aid that causes these things. It's a response to something else. So what do you think it might be? What do we, also, sorry, could you before the Europeans came to Africa, before the horrors of colonialism, how was Africa doing? Yeah, pretty poorly. Right. Virtually no written languages. They'd not even invented the wheel. They'd not built a two-story building. Not great. Life expectancy, I don't even know. But in South Africa... Uh, as late as sort of the mid-20th century, life expectancy was in the 30 to 40s. So it can't, I mean, it can't be white. If, <laughs> if Africa had this glorious civilization and whites somehow came along and screwed it up, which is sort of like imagining Haiti can invade America, right? <laughs> any sense, right? If they had this glorious civilization, well, so... Can't be white racism. Yeah, no. First two-story building in Nigeria was built in the 1850s by a Christian cleric. So no, it it can't be white racism. That makes sense. You say ah, slavery. Slavery. Well. Well, I, I, I un listen. Less than less than two percent of American whites owned slaves. Do you know how many? Do you know what the percentage was of freed blacks who owned slaves? You won't believe it. <laughs> In New Orleans, at least. 
28% of freed blacks owned slaves and 2% of whites owned slaves. About a little less, 4.8 or 5% in the South. So, four, like, you know, 5 to 14 times more freed blacks owned slaves than whites. I don't think that was just white racism. And of course, you, uh, you, you couldn't get slaves as a white person, even if you were just some horrible white racist, want to go capture a bunch of slaves in Africa, you couldn't do it. You couldn't possibly, <laughs> because Africa doesn't have a winter. And because Africa doesn't have a winter, the amount of pathogens in the air, <laughs> you know, like you, you see these pictures of the Serengeti with the heat ripples, those aren't heat ripples, those are dancing bacilli out to eat the brains of white people. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> white people have no immunity. The average life expectancy for somebody who did who touched the shoreline and went four feet inland, the average life expectancy for a white person in Africa was 11 months. Oh, cholera. Oh, typhus. Oh, Ebola. Oh, God. This continent is trying to kill me just for my whiteness. And so the only way that you could get slaves as a white person was to buy them from black people because black people could go inland and catch the slaves and bring them to the Sure, where you kept a civil distance, <laughs> not from racism, but from a desire to have all the pathogens in the known universe not jump from a black who's largely immune to it to a white person who coughs once and his eyeballs explode. <laughs> right, so there could have been no slave trade without black people catching slaves and selling them to white people. And of course, um, slavery was practiced by the Muslims, captured millions of Europeans during the Ottoman Empire and before even. And, you know, far more slaves went to Brazil and far more, far more slaves went to the Muslim world than ever went to the West. So why, why aren't blacks yelling at Muslims for reparations? Uh, I, resources, lack of resources, not likely to get reparations. No, lack of guilt. <laughs> you yell at the, yell at the Muslims and say you demand reparations. What are the princes of Saudi Arabia going to say? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Let me introduce you to my good friend, Jimmy the Knife. <laughs> right, so... So is that is that an incentive, do you think? that? Well, no, we're still talking about the success and failure, right? And I've talked about this. Some people know the answers to this because we've talked about it before. But... um. Haiti is not poor because of whites. Haiti is poor because the average IQ in Haiti is what? I don't know about that. <laughs> it's 67. Mm. And just about everyone who's got an IQ of 67 makes a couple of hundred bucks a year. Average IQ of American blacks is 85. Average IQ in sub-Saharan Africa, 70. Blacks in America are 20% white, which is one of the reasons why they've gone up a standard deviation in intelligence. So remember the hierarchy. Jews at the top, Asians, whites, Hispanics, blacks. That perfectly mirrors IQ distributions among those groups. Highest IQs, Ashkenazi Jews, 112, 115, 120 plus if you count only verbal and take out visuospatial. Asians, 106. Whites, 100. Hispanics, low 90s. Blacks, 85. It's not white racism. What is privilege? 
It's higher IQ on average. Yeah, there are brilliant blacks and there are stupid Asians, right? Get all of this, right? Close to 20% of blacks are smarter than the average white. But I don't know how it's privileged that there are certain groups who have higher IQs. And I had a guy on talking about one of the reasons, some of the reasons why the Jews have such high IQs, because they basically had an intensive breeding program for 700 years or so to raise IQ, which is that the rabbis, who were the smartest people, had the most kids. And they found this, that the income markers for Jewish people and the number of kids they had correlate, that the smartest people had the most kids. And if they gained like a third of a point per generation, which is not unusual for that kind of selective breeding, well, they're going to end up with a standard deviation higher after a couple of hundred years. So they bred for intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it was some conscious thing, you know, but it's, it's, it's what happened. And plus, of course, you know, the, the Jews, because they weren't allowed to own property, they tended to make their money in, in finance and, and uh, wheeling, dealing, being merchants and so on, which required intense math skills. It required language skills to be able to trade uh, all over the world, meant that you could speak more languages. And of course, um, unlike the, like, why were the dark ages so fucking dark? Because the Catholic Church took all the smartest people and cut their balls off. <laughs> oh, well, can I, you read Greek and Latin? Go into a monastery and don't have children with anyone. <laughs> well, I would I would argue that that even um, intellectualism and kind of like worshiping worshiping thought, or not to put it in those terms. Sorry, that's um, I'm not as well spoken as you are, but uh, it's kind of a sort of ex- escapism for escaping whatever culture you're in, and given the the history of the Jews and trying to escape. Uh, pretty much whatever given situation they were in, it, it makes sense that they would kind of flock towards that, even subconsciously. Plus, of course, <laughs> to to the average, I can't imagine what the average IQ was in Europe after, you know, 700 years of making, <laughs> taking the smartest people out of the population and castrating them theologically for the benefit of the Pope. But holy shit, it must have been low. So for the average Christian, like in the year 1,000, I shouldn't say that, because the Jews were not considered to be remarkably smart or even smart at all relative to the general population in the ancient world. Okay, so Jews like 17th century, 18th century, when the Jewish intelligence is really cranking up because smarter people bred more, rabbis had like 8, 10, 12 kids. And the the Jews who weren't smart, who couldn't learn the multiple languages that you need to study the Talmud and (laughs) figure out the very complex brain-squeezing matters of of, uh, Jewish theology, uh, the non-Jews had a couple of kids, but the smartest Jews had like 8, 10, 12 kids. And and also the women were encouraged to, that's, that's to date smart. Yeah, right? that, the, the, right? the, the, the girls were like, okay, he's pretty, but is he smart? Right? They were really encouraged. The, the, the rabbis, the smartest people had, um, they were at the center of a culture. You know, I never thought I'd say this sentence, but I'm going to anyway, you know. <laughs> Later middle-aged Jewish culture not centered around the Kardashian principle. Oh, they're pretty. <laughs> it wasn't. And, and I, look, I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm reading these books to my daughter that I read when I was a kid called uh, Mallory Towers by uh, a woman, uh, Enid Blyton. Very influential books for me when I was a kid. And reading these, I can really see where some of my ideas came from. Famous sentence in one of the books, just because they're your relative doesn't mean you have to like them. Right, that there was a virtue over blood was was very key. 
uh, in these books. Um, I guess they never made it across the pond to the rather hysterical family cult of North America. But um, but but they always were focusing on a, a girl's qualities of character, a woman's qualities of character, and the girls who focused on their looks were idiots. You know, be presentable, right? Be be tidy, be neat. But, you know, the girls who like, oh, I've got to comb my hair a hundred times because I've got this fluffy golden hair. Like, they were just ridiculous and they got taught lessons until they wised up. So post-war British culture, perhaps due to a dearth of attractive people, I don't know if you've seen them smile. But, um, <laughs> but the, um, in the post-war British culture, I think these books were written in the 50s or 60s, I don't know. I actually see died in the 60s, so they're probably written in the 40s and 50s. It was very much focused on the qualities of character. Focus on qualities of character. Any culture which holds intelligence up as the highest standard will inevitably improve over time. And any culture which holds up... It's J Jennifer Aniston. She's the major problem. <laughs> I don't want to take this personally. I try not to. But I do anyway. The um, Jennifer Aniston, when she was trying to figure out who she should settle down with, number one, I, I got to have a guy with a full head of hair. Oh, man. I'm losing my hair, so I totally feel that one. And, um, or, uh, like, the, like the guy over there with the hella good hair, right? That's from some Taylor Swift song, right? Does he have pretty hair? What the hell does Scott Dysick bring to the table other than cold, lizard-like, sociopathic eyeballs and nice hair? <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> Um, so in, in the Jewish culture, the women have resumes, binders of their accomplishments and achievements. The survival in the Jewish community is making sure that the smartest people have the most kids. Now, if you're from an, an average intelligence culture, and this of course would be white culture, it's magic, <laughs> right? It's a conspiracy. Yeah, the conspiracy is called fuck people with big brains. That's the conspiracy. That's all it comes down to. They do not have the Kardashian principle. Right? They don't have the Kardashian. They have the Einstein principle. Idiots look for mere physical markers, which is base mammalian stuff. But when, when you cultures argue... That, cultures that, sorry, cultures that succeed and expand... Read for uh, intelligence. Sorry, you going to say? Oh, no, no problem. Um, I'm just wondering the degree to which that system perpetuates itself because, as you've stated before, um, absence of parents is, it, it causes, you know, earlier breeding, so to speak. Uh, women, you know, go through puberty, puberty at a younger age and, and, um, without parental figures monitoring, you know, sexual, uh, you know, uh, pursuits. There, there's no advice there. So a system kind of assist, like the culture, the culture itself kind of perpetuates itself. And not that I'm not saying that, not the welfare state. What? Oh, no, yeah. It's not the no. culture. It's the welfare state, right? So the welfare state, obviously, a lot of single moms, at least according to some reports we've read, have IQs in the low 90s. Right? Which is, which is when you say, well, well, it takes two to tango. And, and, you know, as a single mom, the guy just left me. And it's like, well, you chose him. Right, it's kind of incomprehensible to people with that level of IQ that they're responsible. 
because they just can play dumb and get money. Right? Oh, or just but get curious. The, I've had that conversation before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or they just get enraged, right? Which is the response that less intelligent people have to being challenged, right? Like I was thinking about this in terms of the Mizzou. I don't know. Apparently, I can't even pronounce Oregon. But uh, in the Mizzou, like M- M- University of Missouri, cons- problems that are happening there, right? And this is not just true to them. It's just true all across America with this um, pretty semi-fascistic crackdown on free speech. Like you can't say things that are upsetting to people. That's a low IQ response as a whole. But this this kind of issue is um, who's privileged? Who's privileged? You know, men have um, both better and worse outcomes than women in terms of intelligence. Uh, Men have a flatter bell curve of intelligence, which means that there are more super smart men than women, and at the highest levels of intelligence, it can be like 10 or 15 to 1 men to women. And also, men have, um, it's more of a scattershot, right? The men are more likely to have significantly lower intelligence than women. So, is that privilege? Well, it sure as hell doesn't come from schooling. Because the anti-boy privilege, sorry, the anti-boy bigotry in schooling is very, very clear. Very clear. You know, screaming about racism against blacks. How about sexism against boys? Why the hell do boys get prescribed all of these psychotropic drugs at far higher rates than girls? Why is it that um, boys who do better than girls on standardized tests get worse marks from their female teachers than girls do? It's because sexism against boys. And it's kind of like a weird, it's a weird compliment. It's a weird compliment. It's sort of like, well, white males can take it, right? (laughs) White males won't riot. And that's actually pretty true. Asian males won't riot. (laughs) Pretty true. But if you you know, go to black people and start talking about race and IQ, what's going to happen? Yeah, naturally. I mean, they've already been modeled or had that behavior modeled anyways to kind of explode and, or presumably, maybe not in all cases. I don't want to generalize here, but yeah. And this idea that, um, this idea that somehow there's privilege if you, you, you inherit your money, right? inherit your money. It's privileged. Got to take it from you because you inherited it. Well, first of all, I did not earn my intelligence. I did not earn my relatively pleasant speaking voice. I did not earn my accent. And so, so should that be taken from me? Should, Should parts of my brain be scooped out and put into other people's brains to even things out? I don't think that's fair. No, I agree. Does someone get to I don't know, suck the boob juice out of Kim Kardashian's baby feeders and give them to some flat-chested woman to even things out? I don't know. We're all born with advantages and disadvantages. Who cares? Focus on your strengths and stop worrying about other people. PNC Wealth Management recently did a survey. People who have more than half a million dollars free to invest as they like. I mean, I think that's a fair definition of wealthy, you know, half a million. And, you know, maybe they're even millionaires if you include, like, their home equity and other stuff, right? So they did a survey. Of the people they surveyed, what percentage do you think earned their money from inheritance alone? 
uh, less than 2%? 6%. 6% earned their money from inheritance alone. 69% earned their wealth mostly by trading time and effort for money, or as it's colloquially called, working hard. Uh, the truth about male privilege, people should check out this. Uh, some of the data that I've got. The truth about male privilege is just one of these things. So, And they've also done studies that show that um, cranial capacity increases in a linear fashion for every degree you get away from the equator. And that's because, as we talked about with the R versus K stuff, when you go further north, you have to deal with winter. And when you have to deal with winter, you have to learn how to defer gratification. Don't eat your seed crop. Right? You see these squirrels burying their nuts? They'd like to eat them now, but they can't. Because then they'll starve in the winter. And so th there's only one way that I know of to, to go defer gratification, and that's be smarter. Right? In other words, the people who are like, I want to eat my seed crop because I'm hungry. Well, they, they starved to death and died. Right? <laughs> And the people who were like, oh, man, I'd really like to eat this stuff now, but right. self-control is associated with intelligence. The deferral of gratification is associated with intelligence. They've done studies in the, called the marshmallow test. You sit down, a bunch of toddlers, and you say, okay, here's your marshmallow. Now, if you don't eat it in 15 minutes, you get two marshmallows. But if you eat it now, you don't, you don't get two marshmallows later, right? Well, the kids who were able to defer their gratification and half the marshmallows later were much more successful in life. Now, these are little, little kids. I think that's before institutionalized sexism, racism gets started. Hmm. There's just some genetics involved in that. The idea that the tropics and Norway are going to produce no differences in human intelligence or capacities is insane. It's, it's, a, it's a level of super... I, I actually... The 6,000-year-old Earth makes more sense to me than the, the most expensive organ the body has, which is the brain, is entirely unaffected by wildly different environments. <laughs> it's like saying, well, we all came from the sea, so why don't I have gills? Because <laughs> it's changed. You're not in the sea anymore. We all came from the tropics. Why have we changed? Not in the tropics anymore. And what this does for, for whites in particular, and for reasons I don't know, and this is just my conjecture, of course, right? But it creates this pathological altruism. This pathological altruism. Asians not quite as prone to guilt as white people are. I don't know if it's differences in religiosity. I don't know if it's the New Testament. I don't know if it's more respect for women in the culture. I don't know. But whites do seem to be more susceptible to guilt. And so, you know, when some group comes along and says, white privilege, you're only wealthy because we are poor, you owe us. Well, white people feel bad about slavery. That's why white people ended slavery, right? I mean, we feel bad about slavery. Which is why they don't go to the Saudi Arabian government and say, we want reparations. Saudi Arabian government, they don't think you lost. You know, can I have half your gold medal? You lost. <laughs> you don't get half my gold medal. But white people feel bad about it. I, I, 
Why this happens, I don't know. You could theorize from here to eternity. But the point is that white people are very susceptible to this sort of pathological altruism, which is where they feel bad for things that ancestors have done. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no problem. Um, so given that, you know, if, if, and that, that's everything sounds reasonable. That sounds like a totally rational argument. Um, but given that, how do you present these ideas to people without, I mean, you know, you just get attacked. I'm sure you've noticed. I mean, with your channel, it's what? like, man, Thanks. no, not physically. It's the, inter- just... it's the internet. No, no, you don't get attacked. I mean, no, no, I mean, in people, person. people, what they do is they find counter arguments or they find better data and they present it in a rational manner, as far as I understand it. Oh, um, no. Sorry. Just just kidding. Go on. <laughs> oh, you're serious. Okay. I thought you were serious. I was like, wow. Um, okay. Well, your experience has been very different than mine. No, people people don't want to encounter sort of those truths. Maybe like the, the notion that we are not all the same. You know, that that's, uh, that's a very... I would not admit that in a public setting. That would be scary. You know? Right. And, and, and But the reason for that, and, and of course, the welfare state came out of the 60s and... and um, there were two two kind of factors that were working on that. The, the first, of course, is um, well, I guess you'd say three. The first, of course, is that um, uh, in the 1960s, America was fighting a cold war against Russia, against communism. And one of the things that communism said about America was, "Look how badly they treat their black people. Capitalism is unjust." Right. So, in part, as a response to that, they said, "Okay, let's treat our black people better, or whatever." And God knows that was overdue, right? Mm-hmm. I have no <laughs> anything treat people that creates inequality. <laughs> Yeah, anything no that creates inequality before the law is is immoral, even in a status society. It's it's bad, right? So good, you know. Uh, of course, you know. Did the government find a happy middle ground? No, <laughs> of course not, right? It it goes from oppression to subsidizing all the worst behavior you could possibly imagine. You can't find any middle ground when it comes to violence, right? You never just wing people with state power and say they're a complete miss or right between the nuts. <laughs> so that was sort of number one. Um, number two was that the leftists uh, in America had lost the propaganda battle after Khrushchev revealed how brutal a dictator Stalin was. Right? Because the big argument for the leftists was, well, there's no shortages in Russia, and Russia's a wonderfully peaceful society. And it does all of these great things, and you know they're achieving all their five-year plans, and they'd go to what were called Potemkin villages, which is where all of the prisoners of the concentration camps were fed up for a week and then told to be happy or they'd be shot, right? And um, after Stalin revealed what a brutal cult of personality dictator Stalin was, they lost the propaganda war. And that's when they started uh, trying to court the blacks for votes, uh, and they started trying to import, right, by changing the immigration from Europe to third world countries, they started to import people who were more sympathetic to socialist ideas, right? The fact that socialism was more appealing to people whose average IQ is lower is pretty much all you need to know about socialism. <laughs> Topic for another time. So um, those those issues were all uh, sort of occurring uh, at at the same time. And the third issue was, of course, um, riots. Right. I mean, this happened in England in the seventies. It happened uh, in 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 um, America in the 60s is race riots. I mean, savage and brutal race riots. And... Based on the comparison? I'm sorry, based on the comparison with the perception of of Soviet life versus American life? or Well, I mean, 
the the source of the race riots was a big complicated mess, which probably would be too much to go into now, and which I could oh yeah, of course, only speak to with middling authority. But but why, you know, why why did they cave to the black activists at the University of Missouri? Because they're afraid of riots. And they're afraid of this guy who's on a hunger strike, you know, that the media is going to go in and start race baiting and they're going to end up with some god-awful situation like what happened in Los Angeles after the Rodney King acquittals, right? The, the policemen who were accused of beating Rodney King ended up being acquitted and, like, the city went completely insane. Billions and billions of dollars worth of property damage. People killed, society unable to function, savagery. And that's why OJ was released, right? I mean, this, this, this is that factor for, for people who are younger that don't remember this stuff, but I tell you, the government remembers it. Because what happens then? I mean, governments are always sensitive to how they're perceived in the world, right? And the amount of, you know, when there's riots going on, I mean, you, That's you have to go yeah. in there, you have to go in there pretty savagely, right? And then you've got a bunch of largely white cops shooting rubber bullets at a bunch of black youths and, man, it's brutal. Yeah, I never considered the degree to which, uh, responses from, from the government is also perpetuated to, uh, for for relations and like foreign affairs, you don't want people to perceive you as weak on a, an international stage. In the or way that you, brutal. Yeah. Now Russia doesn't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Putin doesn't care at all. Yeah, a guy who criticized me in the media seems to have developed a bit of a stomach ache. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that he doesn't care. Putin recently said about Syrians or about the radical Muslims, he said, uh, "It's not my job." To judge them. That's God's job. It's my job to arrange the meeting for as many as possible. Putin gives precisely zero fucks about his reputation on the world stage, which is obviously a topic for another time, but it's something that can be learned from, so to speak, right? Yeah. But that's a, uh, partly because, I mean, I don't think feminism took much of a hold in Russia, and this feminism is the elevation of women to a standard of perfection, and the, 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 the devolution of men to standards of ridicule. It's not about equality, right? It's about worshipping the fields. You know, like this, this woman, Melissa Click, the communications or whatever the hell professor she was at Missouri State University, she gestured to a bunch of men, and she said, I need some muscle over here. Now, can you imagine if I gestured to a bunch of women and say, bring me your, bring, bring some, I need some tits over here. That would be dehumanizing, right? That would be to reduce women to a mere physical attribute. But she can refer to a bunch of men as muscle. Needs muscle over here. And do feminists say, gosh, that's dehumanizing. That's very disrespectful to men. That's reducing them to a mere physical characteristic. No. Of course they don't. Yeah, the dudes are probably thrilled because they get a, I, I get what your argument, though. I'm not. I'm not refuting that. I, I see the inequality there. I'm just and look at the Ferguson effect, right? Right. So, 
Michael Brown, right, a 300-pound giant, attacks a police officer, tries to take his gun. The gun discharges. He beats up the police officer, and then he turns and charges the police officer who fires in self-defense. And suddenly it's like, hands up, don't shoot. Black lives matter. Hmm. And, and what's happened is, I think entirely understandably, it's called the Ferguson effect, is that the police are now very reluctant, I would imagine. I'm just sort of put myself in their shoes, right? Very reluctant to get involved in these kinds of situations. Yeah, very no, reluctant. I, it's, it's life ruining. I could totally understand why. Oh, your life is over. Yeah. I mean, you, their their means of living and their um, yeah. I mean, their their families are at risk, and yeah, I can imagine. And um, but that with the Freddie Gray of... with the Freddie Gray situation, again, I mean, there's some problems with the narrative that's being put forward. And so, what's happening, of course, is the police are now reluctant to get involved in these kinds of situations, which is to some degree open season for black criminals, which is why the, I can't, it's off the top of my head, I think the n murder rate in the neighborhood has now climbed north of 300. It's mental. Yeah, and not necessarily. It is an attack, it is an attack on law and order. And of course, those of us who, who push back on these race-baiting narratives do so partly out of just a respect for truth and a desire to push back against the mob and its vehement sense of injustice. Um, but it's also, you know, we kind of care about the black people getting killed. Yeah, it's the worst for those communities and themselves. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, there was a police officer recently who chose, a, a black man atta attacked him and he chose to get beaten into unconsciousness rather than pull his weapon and defend himself. I mean, ask Darren Wilson. Where the fuck is his white male privilege? Where the fuck is his white male privilege? Michael Brown commits a strong arm robbery, attacks the cop, grabs at his gun, charges him, shoots in self-defense. His life is ruined. Where is his white male privilege? So that is a repercussion of, well, no, it's not a repercussion of the narrative, but I have to think that they're they're related. It's it's a look. It's a disrespect for the black community, and a fear of the black community. And I'm not saying whether this is justified or not. It's, and it's just my thought about what's happening. First of all, the disrespect for the black community is to say innocent until proven guilty. Slogans are stupid. We have to wait for the facts to come in, and riots will not be tolerated. And it's a refusal to hold black people accountable for their actions. Right? The, the, the guy who was with Michael Brown, who lied to the police, started riots, started all this sort of stuff. That's illegal. You know, rightly or wrongly, but just talking to the context of the state as it stands, it's illegal to lie to the police. Because he said Michael Brown was shot in the back. Yeah, no, that's 
that's like what you were talking about with R and K selection. It's like, it's not a, in those communities, in those situations, it's not thought of, the law isn't considered in any sense. And I agree with you, statism is well, not. No, what, what I'm saying is that, what I'm saying is that that should be a prosecuted, a prosecutable offense. Because he went and lied to the media. He was inciting riots. I think it was Michael Brown's dad, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Michael Brown's dad say basically he's going to go and start a riot? He said, go burn this motherfucker. His stepfather. Sorry? His stepfather. His stepfather. Yeah, his stepfather. That's illegal. They've got him on tape. Do they prosecute him? No. Why don't they prosecute him? Because they're scared <laughs> start of a the riot. repercussions. Yeah, because they're scared of the repercussions. They got him on and tape actually simply- saying, I'm going to start a riot. Before he yeah. gets up and uh, with a megaphone and says, burn this motherfucker down repeatedly. Mm. Burn this bitch down. He said both. Did he? Mm-hmm. Wow. So, it's a lack of respect for the black community. And this is, obviously, it's going to continue escalating until something gives. I mean, yeah, you deal with, with some sort of riot, right? Well, nobody nobody wants to be the first to bite this bullet, right? And this is, you know, prior to... <sighs> these are not examples of white privilege, right? That, that blacks, these black individuals can lie to the police and openly claim they're going to start riots and never get prosecuted. They have videos of the people in Ferguson stealing. I don't, to my knowledge, not one charge has been laid. These people are not that hard to find, right? Where, where's the white privilege in all this? Hmm. I mean, I'm just, I'd like to see, well, white people make more money. That's not an example of white privilege because Asians make even more money. Why isn't anyone talking about Asian privilege? Why? Because Asians don't have the pathological guilt that makes them feel bad. Right, so they yell at white privilege for the same reason that Willie Horton robbed banks. They say, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. Why do people yell racism at white people? Because white people will pay up. Because they were trained for 2,000 years by the Catholic Church to pay off money for feeling guilty. (laughs) It goes back to what you were talking about with sexual selection and, and sort of people selected for oh, yeah. guilt. People who you know? didn't feel guilty for original sin did not last very long. <laughs> right? Whites have for, for thousands of years been positively selected for paying money for guilt. So then people come and scream racism and whites are like, okay, here you go. Sorry. Priests come and say screams original sin and evil and Satan and the devil and burning eggs of fire. Okay, here you go. Here's your money. This is totally just completely, uh, oh man, now I'm forgetting words. Um, this is not based in fact or anything, but it'd, it'd be interesting to see the degree to which, uh, people that come from, um, that, uh, oh man, I don't want to say evolve, but people that come from society that were Catholic and stuff like that have issues with anxiety now, um, given, the relation between anxiety and guilt, or at least one that I would 
argue. Right. And look, white people are positively selected. Again, I don't know about the difference between whites and Asians. The only difference I know, I think, is that Asians have slightly lower testosterone levels. But again, I don't know. So it's conjecture. But white societies in, in Europe, right, to sort of focus on Europe with this long-ass winter and all that, right, the white societies, they need reciprocal obligations, right? I help you build your barn, you help me build my barn. That's how they survive. Um, it's a peculiar feature of European agriculture that it's, it's a lot of not work and then a huge amount of work. You know, like all winter, you're just sitting there under blankets telling stories and trying not to get too hungry, right? And so there's a huge, so because there's a lot of not work and then a huge amount of work, everybody's got to pitch in. Everybody, so so for, for white people in Europe, if somebody helped you out and you didn't help them out back, you'd feel bad. Because those people who didn't feel bad didn't get any help next year. <laughs> Right, <laughs> yeah, and then they starved to death because they couldn't get all their crops in in time in order to store up food for the winter. Right, so so this reciprocal obligation for Europeans was has been positively selected for like fifty thousand years. You feel guilty if someone can convince you that you have an obligation, you accept it and you feel guilty and you feel bad until you pay off that obligation. Yeah, not, not because winter, because because cooperation, because collective labor was necessary to survive. Sorry, you were saying? Oh, yeah, no, I I completely agree. And even if you know you want to get beyond the the genetic factors, there's just the transfer of knowledge from parent to child, and and the values. You know that those the values of reciprocity are going to be passed from parent to child over generations. Oh no, the, the, I don't know about genetics, but there are definite physiological factors. The physiological factors are that. When white people feel an obligation, their unconscious, their their amygdala produces a situation of anxiety and discomfort until that obligation is discharged. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm definitely guilt driven. Yeah, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're around other people who are guilt driven, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like, I mean, uh, you say to your neighbors, uh, oh, yeah, I'll help out with X, Y, and Z while you're away. And, you know, generally they'll reciprocate and oh, it works out very nicely, right? And this, this, so, so if, if, if you can convince white people that they owe you something, white people will be unable to defend themselves and unable to talk themselves out of their discomfort until they discharge that obligation, right? Yeah. That's why disaffected groups scream racism and sexism at white people, and in particular white males. Just because it works. Because physiologically that's how white people evolve, which is if we if we feel that we have an obligation, we feel anxiety, discomfort until that obligation is discharged. Because that's what allowed us to survive. And those people who didn't have that sense of obligation didn't make it. Look, a kid in Africa, you know, when he's seven or eight, if his parents both die, yeah, he can probably make it, right? 
There's food everywhere. It's no winter, right? If you're a seven or eight-year-old kid and your parents die and no one else takes you in, like nobody takes you in, you toast. You can't survive the winter. You don't know what the hell to do. It's complicated. So even as far as that goes, the sense of obligation where you'll take in someone else's kids. Those people who didn't do that, who didn't create that sense of reciprocal obligation, well, didn't survive on average over time. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um... Because this was, wasn't this the implicit promise of Obama? If you vote in a black president, all is forgiven. Psych! <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Obama has a clear black in-group preference. Because he goes to Trayvon Martin and says, if I had a kid, he'd look like that. But when some white kid gets beaten up by black kids or killed by black kids, he doesn't say that, although since he's half black, half white, could as easily be a white kid he was talking about rather than a black kid, but he never does that, doesn't even acknowledge it. Was that, was that, is that his words? Did he say that? Say what? Uh, what you said, or was that subconscious? I'm sorry, I wasn't following. There. No, no, he said about Trayvon Martin. If I had a kid, he'd look at, he'd look like Trayvon Martin. Oh wow. If I had a son. I had a son. What do you think that says about I I, I mean you don't advocate for a state of society anyway, so uh in the current climate. Okay. But but in the in the sense that we do have a state of society for some period while we're held held hostage so to speak. Um what do you think that that says about about presidents, I mean, presidents having that in-group preference, though. Do you think that that's across the board? I think that it used to be more common for white people to have an in-group preference, but white people have been so viciously verbally abused and often physically abused for the past 60-plus years that it's become um, it's social suicide academic suicide, career suicide, media suicide, to advocate to white people that they have any kind of in-group preference. I'm not saying whether they should or shouldn't, right? That's a topic for another time. But what I'm saying is that anybody who says white people really need to look out for the interests of white people, what would you hear that as? Oh, yeah, no, certainly. That's that's racism, no, no doubt. Yeah, like we, we got an email a while back ago from a guy who works in the um, post office. And he says, well, you get a black manager and all they do is hire black people. And again, I don't know whether that's, he was just giving me his experience. But you can see this um, documented quite well that when black politicians get into power, they just, they start hiring black people. And uh, they have a very strong in-group preference. Women have a very strong in-group preference. Unless it's socialism slash conservatism, in which case, let the feminist she-dogs attack Sarah Palin or Margaret Thatcher or Ayn Rand or <laughs> can I um I, I don't want to take too much of your time here because I know this conversation is uh, stretched on for a little while but uh I was wondering if I can ask 
one more question. Um, it uh, pertains to where I heard this information first and which information? Uh, well, I heard this argument, this diversity argument, because it wasn't necessarily one that I agreed with in the first place. But um, oh, and now I'm forgetting the thought. Never mind. Sorry about that. Oh, you forget the thought. Yeah, it was it was regarding in group preferences, but I, I can't remember what it was about. So never mind. Right. <laughs> Sorry. And if you want to, you know, this whole question of multiculturalism and, and diversity and so on, diversity is our strength. And as sociologists have, have pointed out that this is one of these mantras that has become unconditionally accepted within society with no support from the data whatsoever. Diversity is a religion. It is not a sociological premise or a social organizing principle. It is a religion. Insofar as to question or oppose it is blasphemy, and also because the empirical evidence points in exactly the opposite direction of what the claims are. Claims are that, see, diversity is our strength. Um, diversity makes society better. Diversity is wonderful. Diversity is great. And, you know, it was one of the great heartbreaks of my uh, life to um, to find out just how much I've been lied to about this. Um, it's, it's, it's horrifying just how false this idea and argument really is. And uh, we can put a couple of links to this below, but um, uh, social trust, uh, whether you feel other people can be trusted, uh, neighborhood trust, most of the neighbors in this community can be trusted and so on. Um, the relationship between diversity and trust is negative. The more diverse a community is, the less likely individuals in it are to be trusting. And this is especially true in the U.S., probably because it has greater diversity. And this, is, this data has been, you know, the guy who first studied this sat on, was is a total liberal, and he sat on his findings for five years. He was so terrified to publish them. And he was trying to find some way to make the data go away. <laughs> Five years. And so people say, well, why am Americans getting fatter? Well, there are lots of reasons, but diversity is one of them. Because what happens in diverse neighborhoods is people cocoon. They stay home. They sit on their couches. They don't go out for ball games. They don't go out and set up bowling leagues and so on because it's too complicated. Let's say you don't have a black guy in your bowling. Oh, God, right? We racist. <laughs> yeah, and I... Yeah, I've been in a very diverse neighborhood before, and I know that there's a certain degree of guilt associated, again, guilt, back to guilt, um, associated with that. You know, even self-admittance of, oh, I'm going to encounter people that I won't necessarily be able to communicate with. They speak different languages. And as much as there's a draw to be like, no, it's no big deal. You know, I, I can psychologically, you, you, it takes more motivation. It takes more willpower to get out there and associate with people that are different because it's it's just harder. It's it takes more effort. It's too much. It, it is a lot of work. And let's say that the friendship doesn't work out for whatever reason. Then can you be accused of racism? You know, like you always say to white people, "Do you have any black friends?" How many time? How many times have people gone to black people and said, "Well, have, are you cultivating white friendships? Do you have white friends? Are you pursuing white people to be friends with them?" It's a one way street, right? Uh, 2003, 
There was a general social survey, and they established that people in more diverse neighborhoods trust their neighbors less and are less likely to be politically or communally involved. Trust in general and more specifically interpersonal trust is lower in more racially, racially, racially heterogeneous communities in the U.S. And um, in the U.S. and Canada, a negative relationship between diversity and trust. And uh, diversity seems to alienate people in general, and according to Putnam, Putnam, his name is P-U-T-N-A-M, it pushes them towards hunkering down, towards segregation and isolation. Uh, in the last few years, there's been an expansion of the literature on the integration of migrants and minorities in Europe that reflects on the possible impact of the multicultural model on patterns of incorporation. There is a growing concern that segregation, allowed through multiculturalism and tolerance of separate parallel lives of minorities and the majority, negatively affects the prospects of migrants to accumulate human capital relevant for successful employment in the receiving society and future employability, such as language fluency. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not even race alone, right? Or, or even, like when I was a kid growing up, lived in this apartment building, and on one side was a British couple. And on another side was a Polish couple with kids or whatever, right? And it was just a lot easier to get along with the British couple than the Polish couple. They both were white. The yeah, Polish couple had thick accents, and uh, their food was... <laughs> no, thanks. I'm full. <laughs> I don't know what weird stew, and I don't even know if those are vegetables or monkey brains or what, but thanks, but like I go to the British place and I know what I'm going to get, right? Something that's going to rot my teeth. You got to go to the Polish place and it's like, is there alcohol in this milk? <laughs> hmm. So, because sociologists, they think about ethnic diversity and they say, well, there's a conflict model and there's a contact model. So the conflict model says, well, the more that the diverse groups interact, there's going to be more social tension and so on. That's a conflict model. The contact model suggests, okay, well, you get people to interact. They're going to fear each other less and so on. And the conservatives like the conflict model because it gets to gets them to say no to immigration, at least non-white immigration. And liberals like the second and say, well, you just don't know them well enough, and so on. So this conflict versus contact model, um, around at the turn of the century, Robert Putnam, this American sociologist, they interviewed 30,000 people in 41 communities across America. That is a huge, huge social Painful. study. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's about as big as you can get. And the data undermined both the conflict and the contact model. Um, so the results, they discredited the idea that greater diversity is correlated either with increased hostility or with greater understanding. It doesn't go to either. If you get diverse communities, there's not more conflict and there's not more tolerance or understanding or kumbaya, everyone together and all that kind of stuff. It is associated, diversity is associated with an erosion of trust across the board. Um, more diversity in a community means less trust between, both between and within ethnic groups. See, this is the challenge. The more diverse communities, let's say you have a bunch of Indians and a bunch of um, Caucasians, a bunch of Asians, a bunch of Caucasians living in the same neighborhood. Social trust goes down between the groups, but also within the groups themselves. The whites trust each other less, and the Asians trust each other less if they're in a diverse community. The, the, the more diverse a community, the less socially engaged are its members. They vote less, they do less community work, they give less to charity, and they have fewer friends. People in more diverse societies 
they don't just mistrust other members, other ethnic groups, but they also mistrust their own ethnic group as well. Wow. It doesn't trigger in-group or out-group division. This is a quote from Putnam. He says, diversity, quote, seems to trigger not in-group, out-group division, but anomie and social isolation. To put it another way, he says, quote, in more diverse settings, Americans distrust not merely people who do not look like them, but even people who do. Less charity, less community, less neighborliness. Now, governments love that shit, right? Governments love that shit because the more you can set people against each other, the more you alienate and isolate them from their neighborhoods, their communities, their social groups, and so on. Well, the more they need the welfare state, the more they need the government to step in and fill the void left by the decay of neighborliness. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would agree with that. And it is actually literally a life or death matter. So high social capital is when a neighborhood is cohesive and, and everybody knows each other and looks out for each other and, you know, your kids can go and play. Uh, and you're comfortable and all that kind of stuff, right? And the statistical, what, what the diversity destroys social capital. When you have high social capital, you have better health. You, you see the doctor less. When you have high social capital, you live longer. Your communities are safer. And you have better government and economic systems. Yeah, I mean, I could see the role of government or central government would be reduced by a large degree if you just get people to talk to each other and then you have activity, physical activity that you're bound to disagree, I mean, decrease health issues. Yeah, and there's a negative relationship between ethnic diversity and social capital. So it literally is like, why is the cost of healthcare going up so much? Part of the answer is diversity. And I hate to say it. I really, When I was younger, I was so gung-ho on diversity, I couldn't even tell you. I actually ran a diversity newsletter for a big company in Canada. Like I was like, you didn't like it was like gravity, <laughs> you know. I was like somebody who would argue against diversity is like, well, let's put him behind the flat Earth guy because someone <laughs> makes more sense first, right? Yeah. Ethnic diversity leads to situations where people withdraw from their collective life. Social isolation, lower overall trust, because it's just too much damn work. And they've done these, these experiments. So return rates of letters, like you, I don't know, you're young, what the hell do you know about letters, right? But, <laughs> you know, you, you write a letter and it's got the wrong person's name, right? Right address, wrong name. Now, in, in ethnically diverse neighborhoods, those letters get returned to the post office at a much lower rate. And they control for wealth and education and all this kind of stuff, right? And it doesn't matter whether it's German or Christian or Muslim or Turkish, doesn't matter. All the letters are returned less often from more diverse neighborhoods. Here's another one. Lose a wallet. In an ethnically homogenous neighborhood, the wallet generally gets returned. What do you think happens in a diverse neighborhood? <laughs> Probably does not get returned. Right. Right. Yeah. 
the teaching of values is destroyed oh. in schools, right? Why have schools become so nihilistic and value neutral? Because when you have a homogenous population who largely believes the same things, you can have those lessons reproduced for children then? Nobody gets too upset, right? Yeah, this it's like what you said about um oh man, it was a talk it was on a week ago, I think you were talking about um uh oh uh pride in one's nation and how that has dwindled as well as a result of diversity, right? You can't it's supposed to be pride in values. I mean pride in the nation is a pretty empty empty thing, but um Well pride pride ethnic, in the ethnic pride for whites is racism. It is is always equated to racism, right? Like, like people will say to, how many times do I get called a white supremacist? Which is complete nonsense. There is no race that is superior to any other race. There's, the, the, the concept would make no sense because I'm a relentless pro-evolution advocate. And evolution doesn't, like in separate environments, evolution doesn't create superior polar bears versus inferior brown bears, right? Yeah, they're doesn't, all surviving. Doesn't do that at all. They're, they're all adapting to their local environment the best way they know how. Now, if you take a freshwater fish and put it in the ocean or vice versa, well, it doesn't work so well, right? Take a polar bear and put it in the tropics, well, you've got one sweaty fucking bear, right? <laughs> and, and if you take a lizard and you put it in the Arctic, well, you have a frozen lizard on a stick, I guess, right? But So it's not a question of superior or inferior. It's a question of adaptability. So let's say that there is such a thing as white privilege. Nobody ever says about Japan, well, there's Japanese privilege. Like if you grow up in Japan and you look like Japanese people and you speak Japanese and you know the culture and you're comfortable with all the... Like you have an advantage over somebody from Ireland who just got off the boat. Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. Why wouldn't you? Jesus ridiculous, right? Of course you do. But let's say that there is such a thing as white privilege. Well, of course. A society built by white people which is most hospitable to white people. You know, when you build a habitat for penguins in the zoo, you don't make it 90 fucking degrees. If the penguins could build their own habitat, they wouldn't make it a desert. They'd make it cold and with lots of fish because that's where they thrive right because that's what they're adapted to so we're penguins who can make our own habitat so if there was such a thing as white privilege then the idea that penguins who make their own habitat somehow make that habitat most friendly to penguins how could that even be remotely controversial oh yeah it's it's not a matter of it being controversial it's i think it's a matter of Having, having justice in the system, or not in, in, I'm, you know, I'm more parroting ideas than the things that I firmly believe in, but having justice inherent in the system so that everyone kind of has an equal opportunity with, you know, not selected for other factors like that, what they bring to the table, like IQ and. No, you can't, I mean, come on, man. Do, do, do you think the music industry sorts by musical ability? And by that, I don't mean, I just mean the ability to sell music. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. Like to say, to say that we should have a music industry that, that justice in the music industry would be giving equal access 
to everyone regardless of musical ability or talent or willingness to work. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I, I agree. Capitalism pays IQ. In general. With exceptions and lots of blah, 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 right? Still working on the Kardashian principle. Still trying to figure that out. Although <laughs> I think that's an eruption of our selected bullshit in a formerly K-selected world. But that that's neither here nor there at the moment. No, I completely agree. It's it's definitely our selected behavior. I've I've seen it firsthand in college behavior, like college, and you you do, right. yeah. So, yeah. So justice. So, what are you paid for? Well, you're paid for providing value. And we all know, in general, smarter is better. Like, we can make all the noises we want about, but if you said to parents, listen, your kid can either have an IQ of 130 or an IQ of 70, what do you think the parents are going to say? Oh, yeah, no question. Like, it's not even close, right? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, because of the Dunning-Kruger effect and, you know, the, the inability of people who are less intelligent to know that they're less intelligent, basically. <laughs> um, like, nothing got me to love a great singer than trying to sing myself. I'm telling you, right? Like, I'm a okay amateur singer, whatever. I can hit a couple of notes, all right. But holy crap, when you hear a really great singer? Oh, yeah. Like, or, you know, like, you know. I'm in the same boat. I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah. like, you hear a really great singer and you're like, shit, how do they even do that? It's like, like man, their range is four octaves or something. It's nuts. Yeah, or yeah. you hear Freddie Mercury doing Cool Cat and then you listen to him doing Tie Your Mother Down and it's like, is this even the same guy? Are you kidding me? <laughs> how is this? Anyway, you know, or Sting in his prime. Like, holy crap, listen to him do We'll Be Together. I mean, it's like, Anyway, so when you try to sing, you really get just how incredible some singers are. And, and you can have a great voice and zero charisma. I'm talking to you, John Anderson. But um, <laughs> I saw those guys live. You might as well be in like, Madam Two Swords presents Yes. <laughs> if you're in the first three rows, you can see that their hands are moving. Other than that, they might as well be statues. But... Um, the music industry relentlessly sought by audience appeal. And, you know, the, the, the financial industry relentlessly sought by productive financial abilities. And smart people can do the jobs of dumb people, but not vice versa. Right? Freddie Mercury can sing Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan cannot do somebody to love. <laughs> And so, capitalism, in the free market, right, it, it pays by smarts. But see, dumb genes want money too. But dumb, dumb genes can't compete with smart genes. But they can manipulate. They can whine. They can complain. That's people who aren't good at stuff are good at people. It's the fundamental thing everybody needs to know about life. <laughs> people who aren't good at stuff are good at people. Women. <laughs> <laughs> no, again, generally, right? Women evolved being dependent upon men for men to give them stuff when they were disabled by having kids and breastfeeding and having kids and rinse and repeat, right? So women had to be good at people, not at stuff. 
which is why this woman who can't get her way, this Melissa Click, she starts, she, I need some muscle over here. She's totally appealing to the alpha male instinct to provide muscle to a woman in distress. She's good at people, not good at stuff. And this is why when the government grows, the stupid rise. Because the government means you only have to be good at people, not at stuff, not at doing something. You only have to be good at manipulation. You have to be good at provoking guilt. You have to be good at jerking people around for fun and profit. And you also have to have the blind rage behind the manipulations of the incompetent that is always there. Always there. Some movie I saw with my daughter, I can't remember which one it is, there's some short guy with floppy hair. The Incredibles, maybe? I don't know. Some short guy with floppy hair, and he's got these two giant guys behind him. And, you know, they're, 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 that's why people listen to him, because they're frightened of the two guys behind him. And this is what it is. When, when people manipulate you, the only reason that people allow themselves to be manipulated is they don't want to face the blistering rage that comes when you reject manipulation. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. That answers, answers a question I asked you earlier, too. I know this from my childhood. <laughs> if you reject, you reject manipulation, you face savage amounts of rage. And what have I taken from anyone? Right, people say, I have white privilege, I have white male privilege. What have I taken? I've worked hard. What have I stolen from anyone? Will you get jobs just because you're white? No. I don't get jobs just because I'm white, because that's called affirmative action. Look, I was aware, as everybody with any brains was, when I was finishing my master's and thinking of doing a PhD, as a white male who have some brains, what did I think of my chances? Oh, yeah. Pretty hard to get into academia as a result of yeah. affirmative action. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I I learned recently that I was actually selected for this position as an RA. Um, they said, yeah, you know, we were looking for a white male and, you know, you you fit the bill for a heterosexual white male. And they said it as if it was a compliment. I was just... <laughs> what? I had because you're a heterosexual white male? Oh, yeah, because they have a, I think they have a diversity requirement for the team and I fit that role. And it was, it was said as if it was a compliment and I thought I was hired for my ability. And I know that that's not a common thing, but I, you know, for that particular role, but regardless, I think affirmative action is, is pretty horrendous. It's not, it's not a compliment to hear that. No. Yeah. Insult, right? yeah. Yeah. As I said, before, I said before, you imagine going to the economist, Dr. Thomas Sowell and saying, well, we don't want you, but because you're black, we have to hire you. What do you think he'd say? <laughs> right? Like, oh. Thanks, thanks. but no thanks. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm good. So, no, this idea that there's white privilege. 
you, you elevate, most people elevate others in order to hate them. Right? They, they have a frustrated, and because people aren't telling the truth about IQ to various ethnic groups, you end up with this irrational hatred of Jewish people, and you end up with this irrational pandering of black people. You know, I was not some sort of brain vampire that went from crib to crib in the hospital sucking brain juice out of non-white people. You know, I really, I'm pretty sure that that, that would have made the papers if I had if I had this some sort of little Caucasian proboscis that came out of my nose and sucked up the brain juice of of other people in the in the hospital or whatever. It's not right. Didn't happen any more than than Jewish people have stolen my intelligence or anything like that. Right? It's just it's evolution. It's evolution. And so, yeah, it's just because there's this lack of knowledge. And this lack of knowledge is, is absolutely fundamentally completely destroying the world. This lack of knowledge is worse than the lack of knowledge about statism, which is why I'm talking about it a lot. This lack of knowledge is tearing apart the world. That people don't As recognize. People, people ascribe everything to white male sexism and racism. No, I, I've it's definitely, just, I've seen it really, really controlling the narrative lately, you know, within my peer group and within my age group, and it's the loudest voice. So um, I, I can't say how much I appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, and and it's know. sad. It's, you know, it is really, really tragic. This is like the, the bitter fruit of knowledge. This is the bitter fruit of knowledge. But trying to run society without knowing ethnic differences and the destructiveness of diversity is like trying to send a probe to Jupiter while thinking that the Earth is the center of the solar system. Like you're just not even you're not even going to miss. <laughs> not even going to be close. You know, greater ethnic diversity results in lower school funding because people don't feel emotionally connected to their schools. Greater ethnic diversity results in a lower census response rate. Even in the Civil War, I said the Civil War like it was the only one ever in the history of the, the Civil War <laughs> in the U.S., when the soldiers were in companies that they varied more by age, occupation, and birthplace, far higher desertion rates. No unity, no community, no sacrifice. Yeah, it presents a, a big problem. It even destroys close friendships. The studies are very clear. More diverse communities, people withdraw even from close friends. They expect the worst from their community. They work on community projects less often. They vote. They register to vote less. They have less faith that they can actually make a difference, and they huddle unhappily in front of the television and computers. They cocoon. They withdraw. And this this fantasy that we can fix this by just getting to know people has not worked. It makes everybody unhappy, and of course, the government loves it. <laughs> Leftist governments in particular love it because when they bring in foreign populations, they generally get voters to the left. 
And, of course, as uh, social trust decays, people tend more and more to the state. And it's a great tragedy. And I, I'm not saying I know what the solution is. I mean, I know that the solution is voluntarism, that we need a truly colorblind society, which means to say that there are no laws or rules that recognize color or gender. But unfortunately, there are so many people that that no longer benefits for a variety of reasons. That, um, I mean, imagine, imagine, I have this great heartbreaking vision of what the world could have been like. And I imagine um, how well the black community was doing in the 1920s, 19. So early middle part of the 20th century. Black marriages were very strong. Blacks were founding their own institutions. Tuskegee Institute, you had W.E.B. Du Bois. You had fantastic black intellectuals who were creating a huge movement which was basically saying, don't take things from white people. We build our own communities. We build our own parallel structures. We do it ourselves. We don't run to white government for goodies, that is, going from a slave to a serf. We do it ourselves. There was a very strong movement in the black community. And blacks were rising into the professional occupations, into the trades at unprecedented numbers. Blacks were achieving greater educational standards than had ever been achieved before. There was a renaissance in the black community after hundreds of years of brutal oppression. And I just, I can't help but think. And it's a tortuous thought, but I can't help but think what, what might have happened if that trend had continued. If the smartest blacks had had the most babies. As opposed to the baby mamas and their Nicki Minaj-inspired in-and-out black wannabe rap boyfriends, right? If the smartest blacks had had the most babies, which is what would have happened in a more free society, if they hadn't been bought and bribed by the Democrats, if the warnings about the welfare state that Dr. Patrick Moynihan, Dr. Patrick Moynihan, I don't know if he's a doctor or not, in his report in 1965 on the future of the Negro family, he said that the welfare state will be incredibly destructive to the current growth and aspirations in the Negro family, the black family. And he was right. Of course, it's called the racist at the time. <sighs> All that stuff. Ah, racism. The word racist is just the new word for nigger. It's just something that's thrown out and it's horribly destructive. People just use it casually. Don't understand how racist they're being by using the word racist without clear proof. And um, what could have happened to the black community in America if the freedom and self-responsibility and independent activists had gotten their way. Now, once the government started stepping in and bribing everyone, it's no longer the intellect or the argument that wins the day or makes the case. You can't, you can't fight against hundreds of billions of dollars of bribery. You can't. People respond to incentives. Oh, yeah, it's resources. Totally. Sorry, he was a doctor, PhD in sociology, from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. So anyway, I mean, that's sort of my 
I, I don't view that the, the black culture, of which there are some significant toxic elements, as I think we can all say, particularly among the young, I don't view the black culture at the moment as anything inevitable. And I don't view it as a product of generalized white racism. You had... Um, there were very specific choices made along the way for political power, for subjugation, for control, for vote-buying. And uh, unfortunately, it's now lasted for a couple of generations to the point where I think there's been quite a lot of dysgenics going on. You know, so it's quite a Flynn effect that IQ are rising. Um, that trend appears to be slowing and beginning to reverse. Mm, naturally, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, this show is... Uh, I can't, um, I can't have an audience of average IQ. I can't. I certainly can't sustain any kind of philosophical influence in the world if IQ keeps going down. God. Well, it's disconcerting when you look at, I mean, yeah, you've done quite a bit of series on that, the rise and fall of empires and, yeah, it's, it's disconcerting. IQ is going to be the first thing to go, right? And then, uh, yeah. And after that, right, the glories, <laughs> yeah, the, glories, the glories of Western civilization were produced by a specific group of people of extraordinarily high IQ that other people recognized were smart, right? I mean, there are very high IQ people out there in the world that, you know, people, they don't, they don't even know. I mean, you look at my YouTube comments. I've been studying philosophy for 30 years. People just think they can wander in with their idiot preferences and prejudices and tell me what it's all about. Mm -hmm. They don't have the capacity to recognize quality. It doesn't mean I'm always right. No, but you but. make you make arguments and then you expect counter-arguments. I totally understand. Yeah, it's it's like um, Dan Carlin. I was listening to a podcast about from him about... Um, uh, he's talking about World War One, And I didn't realize the degree to which previous uh, civilizations didn't expect this constant ramping up of civilization as a whole they 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 expected it to rise and fall and yeah. in the modern day we don't expect that but i think that that's the case i think oh i think people are getting used to it now now that it's <laughs> now that it's been more than a generation since people's wages have gone up mm -hmm. all right man i got to move oh, yeah, on to the no, next of course, call, of course if you don't mind listen a great call, and I appreciate you letting me share my thoughts, none of which, of course, are essentially conclusive. There's a lot of data behind it. And for people who are listening to this and they're, like, shocked and appalled, I totally get it. Like, oh, my God, do I ever totally get it? I'm shocked and appalled, too, and I've known this stuff uh, for years. But um, you just need to do that. And listen, you know, we've, we've had experts on the show, Dr. James Flynn, Dr. Kevin Beaver, Dr. Charles Murray, and a wide variety of other experts who um, we've got a talk coming up with Dr. Linda Gottfriedson. Um, and uh, you just need to look at the data and um, keep, keep following down the rabbit hole. Um, on the other side is the truth. And without the truth, we're, things are just going to get worse. Right? The, the, the truth punishes you until you accept the truth. And then, then it stops. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Let's move on to the last caller. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. All right. Up next is Michael. Michael wrote in and said, what is the current and future relationship between my generation, I'm a young college student, and the older generation and the world that they have created of large government and debt? How will the inevitable transition away from this structure affect that relationship? 
Yo, Michael, how's it going? Hi, Steph. I'm fantastic. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you. Well, um, big question. <laughs> big questions. Big questions. I, I'm a big one for, you know, if, if you've chosen not to choose, you still have made a choice, as the song goes. Mm-hmm. And so for the old people, um, okay, well, they could have solved the problems in society, but it would have been a lot easier to solve them. Right? But it's a lot easier to quit after your first cigarette than your 10,000 cigarette, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so they could have solved these problems when it would have been a hell of a lot easier to solve them than it is now. And that is, um, that's on them. And the degree to which there's not even a discussion about things is, um, is chilling. You know, when people have done enough wrong, the, the, like the best strategy they can hope for is to just pretend like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that is uh, this sort of hit and run generation, you know, like we, we ran over your freedoms and now we're just driving off into the night. This, um, th- there's this desperate avoidance of fundamental topics and responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and that that is why society is so screwed up at the moment. It's one of the reasons why. It's that, that when when a certain amount of of wrong has been done, conversation conversation kind of becomes impossible because the the level of I'm trying to think of a good way of a good way to put it. Um, because the, the old are taking resources from the young after the old were the richest generation in human history. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old were the richest generation, inherited the greatest freedoms, and squandered the living crap out of it all. And now have to run to the young people for money. Well, they don't have to, but they want to. Mm-hmm. And it's still happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. I paid into Social Security. <laughs> I paid into Canada Pension Plan. So what? It's like saying, well, I got a degree in basket weaving so pay me a hundred thousand dollars it's like nope you gave your money to the government and it's so funny as well for the older people like they say i always see the government oh it's just racist and sexist and it's an example of white privilege it's like well this is the same people you gave your money to (laughs) so they gave all their money to the government or rather they had the the government took their money and they didn't fight about it and they didn't not a big movement you know, I mean, the single moms against the national debt. I'm not expecting <laughs> you know, the, the American Association of Retired People against Social Security. I'm not <laughs> expecting that either. You can try and, I guess, infiltrate them. And if you can do that, then we can have a libertarian president. If you can make them <laughs> change the fundamental. But there is this entitlement, which is, um, well, um, we're old and we deserve stuff. Mm-hmm. And you owe us. And, um, I don't know, you're old, come and collect it. <laughs> Can't make it down the driveway without a walker, I don't know. But, I mean, there is, there is this tension among, among the old and the young, and, and, and in a changing society, right? That wasn't probably as much in some ways when it was not a changing society. But in a changing society, 
there is this tension between the old and the young. And uh, the, the, the way, you know, old people are bad with technology and old people are bad drivers and, and old people are kind of racist, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Mm. I mean, all of that is quite common in a society where things are constantly changing. And what shouldn't be changing are the basic values, right? The non-aggression principle and so on. But um, the boomers did inherit, in some ways, the greatest civilization the world has ever seen, in, in North America in particular. They did. Flaws and problems and this and that, but compare it, like, compare it to any other. Like if you were in 1950, or you had the choice between living in 1950s America or up until that time, any place in the world, up, uh, at any time up until 1950, you'd be pretty much choosing 1950s America, right? Mm-hmm. So they inherited the pinnacle and peak of human civilization at the time. And what did they do with it? Well, I think they pretty much screwed it up. Squandered it. Yeah, absolutely. Squandered it. Squandered it. And they let themselves get bullied, and they let themselves get manipulated, and they let themselves get bribed. <laughs> and now they scream hysterically about anyone who speaks the truth. Right. You know, when I was a kid, I was just thinking about this the other day for reasons I can't remember, but when I was a kid, I always felt that there was stuff I could be gotten for. You know, like like um, I'd borrowed a flashlight and now I couldn't find it. And I was like, oh man, <laughs> please God, let the power not go out. <laughs> please God, let the power not go out. Because if the power went out, of course, my mom would say, we need a flashlight. Mm -hmm. Hey, didn't you have it last? Oh, no. In fact, I didn't even want to look for the flashlight. Because if I didn't look for it, it could kind of be around. <laughs> but if I did look for it and I couldn't find it, oh, God, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was in boarding school, I mentioned this on the show before, we had garters, which are these little elastics. Because, you know, it's really, really important that your socks stay up. You know, that's... <laughs> That's, like, crazy important. Apparently, Jesus gets crucified again if you walk into a church with your song. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's all over him. Right? And uh, one morning, uh, the, the head of the form barked at me as I was getting dressed in the dormitory at boarding school. It's all in here. The socks are down. So I walked between the... I, didn't, I lost my garters. I didn't know where the hell they were, right? And I sort of, I had one garter. And I walked and I pretended to adjust my garter. Because I couldn't say, oh my God. I'm Like I couldn't say, oh my God. I said, oh, I, I lost my garter. That would be really, really bad. Mm -hmm. Could get caned or I don't know, whatever, right? Because, you know, elastics, super important. <laughs> you know, maintaining the vestigial freedoms of Western civilization. To hell with that! It's elastics around the ankle. That's the important stuff. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and I later, I got found out and I lied. Said, oh, I lost it in gym. Wasn't gym today. <sighs> no gym today. It was the one day. <laughs> one day. Didn't have gym. And nothing ever happened, which is, I don't know, interesting, but it was to me at the time. I thought something was going to happen. And, um, story of my life. Mm -hmm. Thought something bad was going to happen. Nothing bad. <laughs> but, um, so this, when I was a kid, this was the standards that were imposed upon me. A friend of mine 
got verbally castigated, lambasted by a teacher because he he was an artist and he drew a couple of doodles in his book. Doodles in the book. Mm. Damn it, that's terrible. You know, we would go through these crazes in boarding school, like one was called Conquerors, which sounds like you beat <laughs> Conquer with a Q, but it's Conquer with a K, C-O-N-K-E-R-S, which are chestnuts, and you'd put a string through it and you'd hit each other's chestnuts. This is before Fruit Ninja. And then we went through another craze, which was paper airplanes. Who could fly the, make the best paper airplane, fly the furthest, do the most tricks, and so on, right? And I took a page out of a book, and I was lambasted, ripped apart. Your mother worked hard for this book. You just tear it out. See, page in the book of Guinness Book of World Records, oldest coin, that was some serious stuff, man. Garters, flashlights, pages in a book that you ripped out to make. That was some really, really serious stuff. Running up ginormous national debts, pillaging the next generation. Letting schools slide into prisons. Well, let's not talk about that. Mm-hmm. Were you disciplined much as a kid? Not by my parents, by my school. But what you just said. Okay, so what 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 did you get disciplined for in your school? Oh God, um, uh, this is saying the answer to a question uh, before I raised my hand when I was really really little. Oh shit! You didn't raise your hand. Um. Yeah, that, no armpit before answer? <laughs> I can't believe you'd admit that. Oh. <laughs> okay, Mike, I'm not a statist. Call the cops. Okay. Seriously. Uh, it, like, that, that's too much for us. Geo-tracking. Let's get it. Yeah. Actually, in, in kindergarten, in kindergarten, we, we were uh, drawing just whatever we wanted during, you know, the, the playtime, whatever it was. And I wanted to color my trees purple. So I colored my trees purple instead of green because mm-hmm. I thought that they were pretty. And yeah. my teacher not only got angry at me for that, but she recommended that I get screened as a special needs child. Because you you did purple? Yes. Actually, I agree with that. <laughs> Clearly, that means you're going to be a drug dealer. I mean, I think that's... <laughs> right, so, so there's an example, right? Yeah. That was some really, really, really bad stuff. It, it's like the... Doodled the, in a school book, mm-hmm. uh, showed up a little bit late to class. I mean... So, so old people now, when we were kids, I say this, we like we're the same age or whatever, but like, man, people who were older, they were really into rules, right? They were really into, you damn well conform or you're going to get punished. You're going to get punished. You bad. You get lines. You're going to stay late. You're going to get caned. So they were really about inflicting rules for bad behavior and big punishments for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And if you failed the test, you just didn't pass. You didn't get the credit. That time was all done. You could even be kept back a year. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think they call it social promotion now, which is uh, we don't want uh, we don't want. <laughs> the effects of multiculturalism and terrible teachers to show up in school grades so we're just going to pass anyone everywhere. anyway. But, you know, when I was a kid, you could lose a year of your life. Get stuck back in there, right? So, I haven't noticed old people saying, man, that was really bad. We really shouldn't have done that. That was just terrible. Just terrible. 
So clearly they're still very keen on big punishments for tiny little things. Yeah. Now, if you have big punishments for tiny little things, what happens to, say, losing Western civilization? <laughs> you know, I lost a flashlight and I was scared. These people lost Western civilization. They lost the free market. Mm -hmm. They lost a colorblind society. They created an entire dangerous underclass of criminals and single moms and welfare addicts. I was scared because I'd lost a flashlight as a kid. I couldn't find my daughter. Hey, have you found any of my property rights? No, you sold them to some oily politician. For a six-pack and a bucket of chips. So, what is the punishment for losing your civilization? For creating some politically correct, semi-fascistic monster of a society. Where former terrorists can be university professors. Mm -hmm. And Hillary Clinton ain't going to the big house, but might be going to the White House. <laughs> what, what, what is the price for that? Apparently what is the price for, for having an entire generation of men raised by women who you then lecture about how privileged they are? Mm -hmm. What is the price for that? I don't know. I, I, I think we could start with an apology, couldn't we? <sighs> Good luck with that. An acknowledgement, but again, as I say, when people have done so much wrong, an apology becomes sort of, I'm sorry I destroyed the last remnants of Renaissance, Enlightenment, and Greco-Roman civilization. Sorry. Sorry about that. On the other hand, I didn't have any awkward dinner party conversations with people who might think I was a bad person for speaking the truth. Yeah. And, you know, what you said about the tension between uh, the young and the old, what really scares me about that relationship, and I've just been experiencing this really recently, I just came back to school now, I'm, I'm a second year at, at a pretty great school, what really scares the crap out of me is that whether whether it be the elderly, not the elderly, you know, the older generation or, or the governments or the institutions they created, whatever the system was, but the, the system that happened with, with public education and single parenthood, my generation is completely brainwashed. They do not question. Well, they question. They question the completely wrong things, of course, as, as you said in the last in the last conversation. But it, it seems to me like anyone who's brave enough to say, you know, what you just said, you know, the mm -hmm. Federal Reserve. This this is this is a pretty bad idea, guys. Zero interest rate policy for seven years. This is going to be really 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 bad guys you get attacked i mean i get attacked i'm in college right now um I'm, I'm, I'm with you i'm an anarchist you know it took me years to get around but i'm with you i've made very similar arguments probably. actually technically you're way ahead of me because you're you know, younger than i was but go ahead <laughs> right well i had a lot of help but um i've made very similar arguments to the one you just made with the previous caller about how ridiculous the liberal narrative is with facts with evidence same thing with government institutions and all that sort of thing and all that I've gotten, to be completely honest, is I've, I've just lost a bunch of friends, and a lot of people don't like me. 
it, it can change their minds because it's not open to logic. It's not open to reason. It's just, I, I don't know, a reactionary anger, I guess you can say. But, but, but that's, that's what really scares me is we're so busy either fighting each other or perpetuating more of the same and just pretending that it's progress. And we're not even close to, to facing these, these huge terrifying questions. Like, like you just said before, it's very easy to give these, these rights up. Getting them back is really hard. And we're not even trying. We're not even ready to start trying. Right. And, and when, but when you're in a situation of seemingly infinite resources, why would you bother having standards? Right. Right. This is why the R selected mentality is so averse to ethics. Right, we could just print. Like who would be who could possibly be against free healthcare? Right, it's free. We could just print more money. <laughs> what kind of sadist <laughs> would you have to be to be against free healthcare? Right. You know, or or you know, whatever the liberal narrative of the moment is, like why on earth would you be against any of that? Because it's infinite and free, so why on earth, right? So the fact that uh, we're in this environment where there is limitless resources, it means that there's no point having standards. In, in which case, the only people who get attacked are the people who have standards, mm-hmm. right? So you're 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 basically saying free money is a mortgage on the future. Absolutely. Yep. You know, we're we're eating our seed crop, right? Mm-hmm. Now, to the K-selected people, that's really bad, mm-hmm. right? Winter's coming, right? So you gotta gotta change your behavior, right? Mm-hmm. But um. If you're in a situation of infinite resources, putting any restrictions on is just prejudicial, mm-hmm. right? So we say, oh, you know, welfare state's a really bad idea because uh, you're taking money from people, it's the initiation of the use of force. But you see, none of that means anything because there's no guns in front of these people's faces and the debt means that um, it's like free, free help to the poor, right? Right. You know, civilization is still running, the, the lights are still on, the food is in the supermarkets, and all is right with the world. So why on earth would you want to take away money from single mothers when everything's going fine? Like, you must have some, you know, the number of people who are like, you got mother, you got mommy issues, Steph, right? Like, the idea that, that, like, what on earth could possibly drive me to say that single motherhood is a really bad idea? What on earth could possibly drive me to say that? I mean, civilization is still running. Single mothers have their money. Why, why would you? You must just have some irrational hatred of single mothers, because it's like it would be like saying we need to restrict the air that short Asian guys can breathe, <laughs> right? I mean, people would say, "What?" But air is everywhere, and it's free. Right. So the only reason that you'd want to restrict air for short Asian guys is you must have some weird irrational hatred of short Asian guys. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if there's no such thing as winter, and I say don't eat that when you're hungry, why would I do that? Right. If you can get food year-round, and I say, man, you can't eat that. I know you're hungry, but you cannot eat that. But in a situation of infinite resources, this is what fiat currency gives us the illusion of, and debt, Right. People are like, what do you mean I can't eat this? What are you talking about? Like if, 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 if I take you to an all-you-can-eat buffet that's free, and then I say, I know you're hungry, but don't eat. Uh-huh. And you're not fat or whatever, right? Uh-huh. 
right? Let's say you're, you know, you're genuinely hungry, you're underweight, take you to an all-you-can-eat free buffet and then say don't eat. That just makes no sense to people. Mm-hmm. Like what weird kind of control? Now, this is why, because it makes no emotional sense to them. They have to search their, their minds for like these weird, bizarre psychological reasons. Like I, he just hates people who are happy or, you know, they're going to make something <laughs> up because it's such a bizarre thought. Whereas if you're facing winter and this is your seed crop for next year, you can't eat it. Or when it comes to sort of civic engagement, right? If I say, well, you know, Bob helped us build the barn last year. Now he needs a barn. We got to go and help, right? But if everyone thinks that barns are just there no matter what, it's like, I don't want to go help. I get it, right? I don't want to go help my neighbors. They get the welfare state, you know, whatever, right? Get it. Need any communal feeling? I don't need any reciprocity. Come with it, right? As I said, fiat currency turns Europe into Africa. <laughs> well, I think you tackled the first part of the question pretty much spot on, but I want to focus more on the, the the transition away from that because what it sounds like to me, um, and I, I God, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, oh God, oh, right? But I I, I I hope I'm wrong. But um, it, it sounds like. There's no way to to, pre- to prevent this. I mean, like you just said, in in, in your in, in your hundred metaphors, spot on. You can't convince people, or it's almost impossible to convince the vast majority of people that were in a dire situation with with fiat currency and with the uh, national debt and unfunded liabilities and all that. Oh sort. yeah, no, the old people are not going to change. Oh, old people are not going to change. Young. People don't seem to understand it. They attack those who do try and understand it and, and tell people because, as you've said in videos before, it's so unbelievably complex. Only one in what a, a thousand people could understand it. I mean, I work in finance. That's the only way I, I follow no, but the reserve. It works. becomes a lot. It becomes a lot less complex when people can't afford their groceries, right? The longer you push off limitations, the worse those limitations become. So, is that what it's going to have to come to? Do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the old people will never change. Mm -hmm. Right? Because for the old people to say, sorry, we we indulged our sycophantic leftist consciences at the expense of your entire economic future. Right? If they genuinely got, the boomers and post-boomers got the disaster that they had created, then what would justice demand from that? It, it would demand restitution, mm-hmm. obviously, right? Mm-hmm. But what it would at least demand is stop taking our money. Right. Right? No old age pensions for you. Change, yeah. Yeah. Because if somebody apologizes and then goes on exactly as they had before, then it doesn't mean anything. It's just a manipulation, right? So, sorry we took all of these freedoms and, and money from you young people, we really get how bad it was. Well, the next thing would be, okay, so we're going to stop taking more freedoms and money from young people. Right? <laughs> I mean, if the guy says, I'm sorry, I had an affair, and calls you this apology in from having an affair, that's not really... It's meaningless, thing. exactly, yeah. yeah. But it's manipulation, right? Right. It were worse than meaningless, yeah. Right. And old people are not going to give up their pensions. Right. Which means they can't ever apologize, which means they can't ever discuss anything that's actually happened. And this is why there's this relentless avoidance of these issues in the media. Right? Once you've already 
made a mistake that you can't recover from, you have no choice but to double down. Right. I mean, even the mere talk of raising the retirement age, what happens? Oh, you can't do it. Oh, people go insane. Mm -hmm. Like you're kicking old people out to, to live in the dog pound. You know, retirement was put in because of physical labor. Like old age pensions were put in at a time when barely anybody made it to retirement age. And the reason that they were supposed to retire was because they were field laborers. <laughs> and you got arthritis and you got old. You couldn't work, right? Couldn't work. How many, you know, how many people have these jobs now? I've been a bank executive and sometimes talking on the phone, <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But they can't. Uh, and they know. They know that deep down, yeah, the government took their money and it used their money as collateral to borrow more money to spend even more on them. Mm -hmm. So the money that they, they gave to the government, not only did it not provide a retirement for them, but it destroyed the economic reality and future of the younger generation. Mm -hmm. So how could they possibly apologize? You know, when, when you say this stuff, um, I, 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 I don't know if I should feel anger. I just kind of get uneasy. I, I feel scared, to be honest with you, right now. Because, I mean, I'm in the best. So I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a top college. I'm at a top five college in the States. Uh, we're known for our conservative economics program. Um, and sorry, I, I, I don't, it probably sounds strange, but when it, the, 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 the reason I'm bringing this up is I'm in the best possible situation to be surrounded with people, really smart, really motivated people who hopefully would understand, uh, you know, conservative economics, basic things. And in this sort of best case scenario, from my personal experience, we actually have the worst, most authoritative, statist, socialist, um, you know, continue, use your imagination, reality. And, and then if that's true, uh, I mean, I don't know, that, that really scares me for, for the future quite a lot. Right. And, and that's because, and I understand this feeling, but Michael, I would guess that that's because you feel is your job to change their minds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not. It's not. It's not. Most people, and by most people, I mean you, me, Mike, Stoyan, my family, and the rest of the listeners to this fine program, mm -hmm. but most people have no mind to change. They react to their environment. They're not proactive, they are reactive. Most people are employees, they don't start companies. Most people read books, they don't write books. Most people listen to music, they don't make music, right? Right, absolutely. And so, the bitter but liberating truth about trying to change the world is you can't. You can't. What you can do is sow the seeds of knowledge so that when the world changes, people know what the hell is happening. You understand? 
you cannot change people's minds because they're simply reacting to their environment and their environment at the moment provides all the cues of infinite abundance and unreality. Uh-huh. Trying to reason with people in a state of fiat currency is like trying to teach physics to somebody on LSD. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. The unreality of the environment transfers itself almost seamlessly into the unreality of people's thinking. Yeah, yeah. You cannot change that because most people simply are like leaves on a stream. When there's a flood, they go faster. When it's calm, they go slower. Now, to predict and change society, well, the predictions don't change society. There's an ancient story of a woman named Cassandra who was given the power to see the future. And no one believed her. And no one believed her predictions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome to having an IQ north of 150. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, that is the reality. You can see the future. You can tell everyone it's coming. And uh, nobody will believe you. Now, when the situation changes, then people will flock to those who predicted it. Not because they're thinking for themselves, but because they're panicking. Right, so if you say winter's coming, winter's coming, winter's coming, nobody believes you. But then, when winter comes, they'll go to the person who said winter's coming and say, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> right? I think I see where you're going with this. We can only sow the seeds of knowledge so that when the world changes, people know what's going on and we have credibility. Right. You know, people say, uh, oh, Steph, you've been talking about economic dislocation. For years, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> you know, I've been fat for 10 years. I've never had one heart attack. I've been smoking for 20 years. I still don't have lung cancer. It's not the if. So it's not the when that matters. It's the if, right? Mm-hmm. And people make their decisions based upon their short-term emotional comfort. Until they don't, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So what is the... What is the positive effect or what is the benefit at the moment of people starting to talk about the Fed with their family? Why, what the, what, why would they want to do that? None. Discomfort. Yeah, you sell, <laughs> sell it to me, man. I'm, I'm happy to hear. I'm happy to hear how we can make the case. Now, if everybody was open to listening, great. But if everyone was open to listening, we wouldn't be in this situation to begin with. Right, right. I see. Right? People are like, they don't care about virtue at the moment. You know, since the fall of religion, uh, that has been, and since the rise of nihilism in the public school for reasons we talked about in the first call, mm-hmm. um, they've got nothing to live for other than the uh, hedonism of the moment, right? That's all they've got. Mm-hmm. And w- w- why, should they, why should they change that? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Nuchauchi. Uh-huh. I just try to cover all my bases when it comes to pronunciation. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? 
when you kill God and you do not adopt philosophy. There is no limit. There are no limits, and we have created a society which has no limits. And so the fact that people are grandiose and vain and think we can have everything and be everything to everyone, there's no limits to anything. The conservatives in America are staunch Christians, and they believe in limitations. Because the limit of human vanity has traditionally been God. That's why he says, must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of killing God? Whoever kills a god must be bigger than a god. And the leftist fantasy of infinite resources and that morality is viciousness rather than reason. Well, I think that's what you're, they're, they're lost in space. They have no limitations, no gravity, no reality. <clears throat> also, also Sprach Zarathustra, not just a great piece of music from 2001, but Nietzsche's brilliant chaos of a book. Zarathustra says, and what is the saint doing in the forest? The saint answered, I make songs and sing them. And when I make songs, I laugh, cry, and hum. Thus do I praise God with singing, crying, laughing, and humming. Do I praise the God who is my God? But what do you bring us as a gift? When Zarathustra had heard these words, he bade the saint farewell and said, What could I have to give you? But let me go quickly, lest I take something from you. And thus they separated, the old one and the man, laughing as two boys laugh. But when Zarathustra was alone, he spoke thus to his heart. Could it be possible? This old saint in the forest has not yet heard anything of this, that God is dead. He also refers to the death of God later and says, Dead are all the gods. It is not just one morality that has died, but all of them to be replaced by the life of the Ubermensch, the new man. What limits us in the absence of a deity? Philosophy, of course, right? I mean, this is what bothers me with mysticism, with, with uh, meism, you know, like a, a little bit of karma, a little bit of remote viewing, a little bit of whatever, just stuff that makes me feel better, makes me think that... Bullshit. When God ends, mystics, they don't have to get up early on Sunday and iron their shirts and go to church. They don't have to give to charity. They don't have rules. They're vanity. Whatever I like, whatever feels good for me in the moment, whatever mm-hmm. works for me. And this is the hippie stuff, right? And this is the um, the boomers. They got rid of God and they created an environment where they had no limitations. They made no sacrifices. And they became lazy and weak. And like all weak generations, they have nothing but vicious, mean girls, verbal abuse, and helplessness, and its attendant rage. Because you see, when you talk about old people, they say, well, we're helpless and we're dependent and you owe us. And, right? mm-hmm. But how did those old people deal with the helplessness and dependence of children? Well, they stole. They were brutal. 
I was hit. I was caned. I was spanked. I was right. They hit. They hit. They stole. Yeah. They lied. So they they taught us how to deal with helplessness. No. They can either apologize for that or accept the same in return. They can't have both. Because you know they live in a world with no god and no limits and no right. Have yeah. as much sex as you want and. <sighs> If you get some girl pregnant, the government will take it over and you can indulge your conscience for free because the government's borrowing money to pay for the things that you think are nice but don't want to pay for yourselves. They have no boundaries, no identities. They're not even fog. At least fog has atoms. They're not even ghosts. At least ghosts have chains and are bound somewhere. All they have is what Nietzsche predicted, is negation. All they have is negation. The negation of limits, the negation of standards, the negation of reason, the negation of empiricism. And like all who have only negation, they have nothing but abuse, manipulation, self-pity and rage to bring to the table. And you can't tell anyone this because everybody is still high on infinite resources. Right. Any limitation. You know, we pointed out in this show some months ago, we pointed out in this show that women who have a lot of sexual partners are really bad to marry. Mm-hmm. Right? These are facts. But you see, we're talking about limitations. <laughs> we're taking away the toddler's candy. Talking about limitations provokes rage in narcissistic people. They have the toddler's rage. They have the toddler's rage. And it's because their politicians never saw fit to say no to them. No. No, 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 no. You can't have affirmative action because it's unjust. You want a race and colorblind society, we can't be hiring based on race. Oh, no, you can't talk about IQ because that put limitations on people. Oh, you can't have to have your taxes raised to pay for what you want because that would be a limitation. And it's hard to get too mad at them. I mean, the, everybody's complicit in it, right? I mean, the media, the movies, the yeah, the priests to some degree. but The schools. I mean, yeah, the schools. Everybody's just making up all this crap. No idea what the hell's going on. It's just this fantasy of limitations. They have adapted to limitations. This has become their salt water. And you can't... Right, they've adapted to their no limitations environment. They've become totally off. And so to say there are limitations is to move them from the sea to the lake. That's how they've adapted. They'll fight tooth and nail. Like, I never understood this before. Some of the RK stuff, the Gene Wars presentations. I never understood this before. Bernie Sanders, I want to get money out of politics. And I'm going to do that by buying your vote. <laughs> Seriously. Do you even listen to yourself? I don't think you do. 
I'm only worth $150,000. Apparently, a good haircut is $151,000. <laughs> but, um, no, you, you have to wait for the environment to change. And you have to say, it's not going to work. 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 Then when it stops working, people will flock to you. But they won't listen to you before it stops working. It's just right. not. It's not. That would require that people accept discomfort. That would require that people accept discomfort for the sake of a higher ideal, and there are no higher ideals. We don't have ethics. We have slogans. We don't have virtue. We have chance. We don't have higher callings. We have petty moralizing and self-congratulation for delusion. Why on earth? It's nothing to sacrifice for. Everybody just looks at who the crowd dislikes and calls them bad. And everybody looks at who the crowd loves and calls them good. There are some exceptions. Some of the braver American conservatives and liberals. I'm thinking of, of some of the people on the right and the degree to which they'll talk about immigration, some of the people on the left. Bill Maher in particular is constantly railing at the leftists for being tolerant of the intolerant. But there's nothing, there's no, people are, are, are not, they do not have the self-esteem to sacrifice because they do not understand that the future cannot be like the present. They think that the winter will never come. And they think that anyone who suggests the winter is insane. Tomorrow in Nairobi, four feet of snow. <laughs> Not going to happen. So when you talk about the winter coming, you know, the, the, the ant and the grasshopper. Grasshopper plays all summer, and the ant stores up stuff for the winter. When does the grasshopper change his behavior? When he's really cold. But I mean, I think with that story, it was it was too late for the grasshopper, wasn't it? No, it wasn't too late because no? he could he could appeal to the sympathy of the ant <laughs> and eat all winter from the ant's work. Uh, right, right. We don't know what happened next summer. Whether the guy was like, "Oh shit, I can play all summer," and then the ant would give me food for the winter. I don't know if he then said, "Oh, I got to work with the ant." Right? If the ant really wanted to help him, he'd say, "Okay, I'll do it this one time." But if you're not working next summer, you're not getting a goddamn thing from me. Right, right. Because why on earth would I care about your genes? When I've got uh, my own ant children to feed. Right. I care more about the ant genes than the grasshopper genes. Raise yourself. Winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, raise yourself. Reality is coming. And, you know, once the high wears off, people can think more clearly. But they're all drugged with this delusion of infinite resources that their genes are naturally responding to. And their thoughts are conditioned by the brain, which is conditioned by the epigenetics, which is conditioned by the environment of infinite plenty. Right. Ants know. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> They get all the advantages of K-selected brains with none of the disadvantages of a K-selected environment that's supposed to produce those brains. Right. But people will switch back. Human beings are nothing if not adaptable. So you can't, can't fix the world, you can't change the world. But you can um, find the people who you can speak honestly and openly with 
people say, I lost friends by speaking the truth. You know that's a fallacy, right? I lost liars by speaking the truth. Turns out, I had people in my life who were allergic to the truth and hated me for speaking it. Right. My friends are gone. No, they're not. Well, they're not your friends, right? Your friends are coming because <laughs> these assholes are out of the way. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I don't know why that didn't cross their minds, but... Well, that's because they don't want, they want you to think that it's their friendship that you've lost. But you just, you, all you're doing is clearing the bullshit away so that good people can come into your life. Because they won't, like, good people will look at you surrounded by, if you're surrounded by these jerks and say, well, he's not ready. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but yeah, it's not up to you. Just, you put out the truth. And for God's sakes, don't, don't make your efficacy and your sense of value dependent upon changing people's minds. That's putting your power into the hands of crazy people. Forget it. Mm-hmm. You speak your truth, people will listen, they won't. God, let go of trying to change the minds of people around you. You know, speak the truth and, uh, you know, people show up or they don't. They're, they're there or they're not. But if you make your value contingent upon other people accepting the truth, then you elevate the rejection of truth to a higher value than truth itself. Truth is a test for people in your life. It's not a test of your value. It's a test of their value. You know, like, I mean, listen, I couldn't survive a day with the feedback in the world if I thought that people had to accept the arguments that I made or reject them for some reason, right? I I couldn't survive. Oh, Esteban, it's a joke. He's terrible. He's right. Okay, so. Oh my God. <laughs> that's got something to do with me. You're wrong. <laughs> right, right. It's got nothing to do with me. So, you know, you're not worthy of the truth. Or of arguing against the truth in a rational manner. Or arguing against whatever I'm proposing in a rational manner. And some people come up with really great objections. And they're, you know, fantastic. You know, some people have certainly changed my mind based on a wide variety of great arguments that people have put forward. But, um, yeah, you, you cannot hang your self-esteem and happiness on whether fools listen to reason. Just don't, don't give fools the power to reject you. Right? I mean, that's not... Uh, it, it's a weird kind of self-confidence, you know? And it is very strange. It's very strange. I mean, it took a little while for me to get used to the idea that I was this good at this stuff. Um, it's just, you know, because you've got to be skeptical and you've got to be, you know... Doubt is foundational to wisdom, but at some point, um, you have to accumulate enough knowledge that um, you have to give up. You know, an excess of doubt is just another kind of self-indulgence, and I can't rail against the baby boomers one without, and then accept it for myself or yourself, right? Once you've studied enough and you're smart enough, then the people who get upset at you for making a cogent argument, yeah, good riddance. <laughs> I've got syphilis. Would you like to have sex? Uh, oh, there's somebody's ringtone. Um, <laughs> I'd have to say no, in fact. Does that help? That, that's actually, that's, that's very, very helpful. Thank you. And I, I do want to say one more thing. Um, what, what you said last call about how heartbreaking it was for you to learn uh, how much you were lied to, that, that really... Uh, What's, what's the expression? Struck a chord with me, I guess you can say. Uh, oh, it's hard. I mean, in high school, just well, most of my life, right? Just by, by the nature of the society that we're in now. I mean, I was, I was the 
most diehard communist you could possibly find. The inequality, mm. affirmative action, all that stuff was. And then I think it was, uh, I think it was the Iraq War. My friend sent me a video of yours on the Iraq War, and it was fantastic. I, I completely agreed with you. And then I, I listened to some of your other videos, and you said you were an anarchist, and I, like scoffed. I was like, oh, this guy. You know, how could he? I had hope, but then it turns out yeah. he's uh-huh. right. And then, and then you. Why couldn't he just be the other A world to be an asshole instead of <laughs> an anarchist? Huh. And uh, then you put forward these arguments, and I listened and I laughed, but I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really find a response. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't come up with an answer. And uh, you know, after after three, four years of uh, very uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable reflections uh i gotta say i'm with you 100 percent. so so i really wanted to thank you for that for making that change in my life well i thank you for um listening right and and this is what you need to understand about the difference between you and others right is that you didn't just like right no i i couldn't scratch you're like you're like i don't agree but i'll keep listening i mean how could you live and i think you're talking about the video iraq a decade of hell which i think people should um should watch but um no your response was I think entirely rational, which is like, uh, that doesn't really make much sense, but he's got some other interesting stuff to say. So I'll just, you know, and just keep working away on the argument until it either works or you can find a way to reject it. Yeah, exactly. So I appreciate your patience with that as well. And people who aren't that way inclined, they're just saying that they want immediate social comfort as opposed to doing anything right, which means that the only thing they care about are their feels. It's just their feelings, <laughs> just their immediate. They get that that the ultimate narcissism and grandiosity is to have no standards above your own feelings. But that's like a uniquely male perspective that um, has kind of gone out of the wayside, right? Mm. So, all right. Well, thank you very much for your call. I appreciate that, and keep us posted about how you're doing. Uh, always a great pleasure to chat with the listeners and the callers. Thank you. I really, really appreciated it. Glad it was helpful. So thanks, Mike. Thanks, Michael, of course. And uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out with the showness. Uh, still need your support. Still need to grow. We're doing quite well, I would say, particularly um, since I let loose um, on some of the European situations, particularly after the Paris attack. But uh, we need your help to continue to grow and to keep bringing as much reason and evidence and clear thinking as possible to the world as a whole. Thank you, everyone, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful weekend. We will talk to you soon.